Everyone, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the GTM News Show. This week, we're going to jump into part two of the top 10 go-to-market strategies for 2024. And these are highlighting conversations I did this year with folks that really brought very insightful and prescriptive ideas as it relates to go-to-market and things that you should really consider for 2024. Um, and I think all these conversations, I had a ton of amazing conversations on the show this year, but these conversations in particular are really the ones that I think have, uh, number one, the most interesting ideas, some really important ideas to go into 2024. And they also had really prescriptive takeaways of things you can do to kind of differentiate your go-to-market motions and ultimately win more deals for your organization. So before I jump into uh, the part two in these five episodes, I want to let you know that next week we're going to be talking about the demand generation predictions I have for 2024. So a lot of go-to-market uh, function is ultimately creating or capturing demand for your organization. And so I'm a B2B consultant and I work with B2B organizations and things I've seen that are working this year and I think will continue to work in 2024. I'll be talking about in next week's episode. And then the week after that, I'll be talking about um, how we're going to revamp the show a bit and add um, a couple more uh, uh, formats and and a bunch of different things. I won't, I won't spoil it. Uh, but some really cool things to have for 2024 for this show. And really, ultimately, the goal is to bring you prescriptive insights and ideas, things that you can actually implement in your organization. Because what I found is so much of B2B content out there is really generic and high level. So things you can actually implement in your go-to-market motions to ultimately drive more demand and uh, ultimately take your products to market in a more efficient manner. So let's jump right into part two of the top 10 go-to-market strategies for 2024. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the GTM News Show. I got Casey here today. Hey, Casey. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Yeah, great to have you. So Casey uh, is works for Active Campaign. He's a senior growth manager. And I actually saw an ad he was running uh, a thought leadership ad on LinkedIn. He was running under his profile for Active Campaign that just had a ton of value in it. Uh, I liked it, commented. I was like, this is an awesome example of a thought leadership ad, zero click content. And uh, in the world, especially B2B, go to market where um, everyone's spending more money, getting diminishing returns on every channel, it seems like, especially paid media. The clients I work with, it's just uh, getting harder and harder. Uh, to drive results. Um, what we're seeing is a little glimmer of light is the thought leadership ads, zero click content. How do we provide value through um, advertising, through ads? So I wanted to get Casey to come on to see what he's seen um, and his thoughts. And I'm sure we'll kind of dive into go to market and B2B marketing and uh, talk shop in those other areas. But first, Casey, I'd love to hear just from you. Um, at first, maybe how do you how would you describe to the audience if they haven't heard of what thought leadership ads are on LinkedIn or other platforms? Um, how do you describe that? Let's start there. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, essentially a thought leadership ad is often like you take a standard post on LinkedIn that's providing something of value, some sort of topical authority. So you're talking about an issue that you know extremely well, and then you're promoting that as an ad. So the idea is instead of an external ad, you're promoting existing content, something that you've already posted, and then you're going to kind of just put additional reach with a paid budget behind it. That's that's kind of the core of that. And I think why it's really exciting, as you kind of noted at the top, is this idea of what if we can actually add value through the ad experience, right? Ads tend to be very much, um, you know, just a state like a baby statement. Oftentimes, you're trying to pique a little bit of curiosity. You're trying to push someone somewhere. 
I'm, there's not any real value that's delivered by the recipient. So I think this idea in a crowded ecosystem of how can you stand out by building trust. In some ways, that's the big barrier that we're addressing with this conversation is that standard ads don't really deliver any type of trust. But if you mm. speak to an issue and you give someone something tangible that they can take away and apply to their business or solve a problem or have that kind of aha moment, you are now seen as an authority. You are now seen as a leader. And I think where people often miss the ball with a lot of these things is they feel like, okay, Casey, but if it's not directly promoting my product, how is that kind of connected in? Like, is that really going to have value for me? What I've found from running a lot of these and spending a lot of budget on experimentation is if it's in the lane of where your product serves. So I'll give you an example. I run stuff specifically around a deliverability consultation that I did. And here's all the things to think about with deliverability. Now I work for Active Campaign. We do marketing automation and email marketing, right? And so that has a connection, but I'm not mentioning Active Campaign directly, but by building authority around that or building authority around conversion rate optimization or how should you run a newsletter, those topics all dovetail and connect back to my service. So when someone looks and they say, oh, Casey is a, an authority around email marketing, oh, Casey's with Active Campaign, like that connection becomes what actually drives people um, through the door. And so it's really exciting to experiment with. And we're experimenting actually kind of on two faces with this. We're experimenting with promoting employee posts, but we're actually also experimenting with promoting outside partner or customer posts. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's very interesting is the prerequisites for one of these thought uh, thought leadership ads, if you will, is they need to have the company name, the company in their job history. But if you reach out to someone and you say, hey, if you put active campaign partner and set that to present, it has to be set to present, then we have the ability to promote your stuff, right? So it becomes this win-win where you can get that thought leadership coming even from someone not at the company, you get that amplification from the outside and they're getting free exposure. Most people, if you say like, hey, can I go spend $500 a day to promote your content? People are like, sounds great, right? Um, so I think it's kind of fun to see both sides of that test, both with internal thought leadership on our team and with customers. Oh, super cool. I'm just taking some notes on mine. I think you hit a couple really cool points in there. First, number one was um, thought leadership ads when you're as a pattern disruptor, right? Most people are, you know, when they see an ad, the minute they see sponsored or the minute they, uh, you know, we, we all, we all are, we're like trained. And I think even now, just cause like, I think the average person sees anywhere from it's like 500 to 10,000 ads in a day, depending on, uh, Forrester did a study recently on this and it's crazy how many ads we see a day. Right. And so the pattern disruptors, number one is you're like, you can stand out. Number two in that is it's selfless. And I think I, you know, on this show, a lot of folks that are listening, they'll hear me hear, talk about selfless content, right? That content that actually serves people. So you're in that example of that email deliverability, you talked about, um, you know, you did analysis and that's why I loved it. it was like, you know, I think seven to eight points, right? And it looked like a, a typical, not typical, but just a, a great, just like you breaking down something and educating me on something. Um, and then you promoted it. Um, and if you follow like anybody in uh, like Gary V or really anybody in like uh, advertising or, or marketing in general, uh, Dennis Wu, who pioneered the dollar a day uh, strategy and, and whatnot, he talks about taking, you know, figuring out your organic post really well and then promoting those because those are those are going to are ultimately going to what's going to drive engagement that the most 
organic looking piece of content is what's going to uh, resonate with people because it doesn't look like an ad, right? So I think you're you're hitting a bunch of points there. And then um, I also love what you said, two to three degrees away, uh, maybe from directly to your product, right? Where it was, the, it, it's, it, it ties back, right? But it's not you... Um, it's not even you talking about email automation and per se, it's, it's like a segment of it. So it's not direct, it's like, it's like first, it's not first degree, it's almost second or third degree. And I think in general that also provides like, it's, um, it's another way of like going one step further of being selfless versus you just figuring out something that's closely tied to your product as possible. You're becoming an expert holistically where it's like, you're looking at it from every single angle and that builds that trust with people versus you just going in and trying to like, what's the first pain point that your problem solves and then going in hard on that. Not to say there's not value in that, but I think the second and third degree uh, thought leadership is, is really powerful. And the last thing you said, which I have not heard yet, is promoting um, job history, or, excuse me, uh, tapping into your, your employees and partners maybe that don't work with you anymore. And I immediately thought of like employee advocacy, number one, Right, like you're able to tap into, uh, like for you, Casey, like you are not only building it, it's a benefit for you, number one, because you're building your own personal brand through this, but um, it's you know, we all know people buy from people, so there's you're tapping into your employees, but then you're also talking about former employees and partners. Uh, can you dive a little bit deeper into that of like how you guys have seen any successes or pitfalls you've seen in the the employees and and partners? Um, or just in yeah. general, like, you know, maybe somebody, maybe you don't have somebody that's creating content already, right? Like you're obviously creating content for LinkedIn. How do you engage folks? How do you make sure they're creating the right content? Um, yeah, well, I'd love to hear yeah, more here, on that. Here's how you can think about it with customers or with, or with partners. So when I go for a channel, this is kind of overall go to market. I always try to think of layering. And what I mean by layering specifically is I try to not just go in from one point of attack. So right now on LinkedIn, I'm trying to mobilize our entire team to post thought leadership. We're also running paid ads. We're also running a campaign called social amplification where we reach out to customers and we try to get our customers to post about their use cases. Why are you using active campaign? What's working for you? What's a big win? So we're coming at the channel from three different directions. Now, because we're coming at the channel from three different directions, every single week we have 10 plus customers that come onto LinkedIn and post their experiences about active campaign. Those might be customers or partners or, or agencies, et cetera. So I might go to those folks and might say, hey, I loved your story about why you migrated over from MailChimp and I would love to help promote that. And all I need from you is if you just add active campaign into your history, I'll actually be able to run paid promotion. You'll get a little ping from me that says, do you want to allow active campaign to run this promotion? You'll say yes. And that will then start going out there. So it dovetails really nicely in that we have this content that's already being created as part of our multi-pronged strategy on the channel, and now we're just amplifying it. Again, we're using paid to increase the reach there. And so I think, uh, too, when people think about this, like, if you think about a funnel, right, part of why we have it two to three degrees removed, as you said, is that the more top of funnel you go, the more generally applicable it's going to be. And so the wider audience you're going to be able to speak to, the better click-through rate you're going to get. There's absolutely a place for retargeting ads. There's absolutely a place for bottom-of-the-funnel content that's focused on converting people. 
But a mistake that has happened for a long time in B2B marketing is people keep using the word demand generation when really they're talking about like demand conversion, right? This retargeting, this bottom of the funnel, these comparison articles, this is for people that already have a lot of that interest, right? So that's already, that, that their demand is already there and you're essentially helping convert it over to your tool specifically. But I think if you're trying to take a step back and say, we need to create new demand, that new demand is often created because of that topical authority, because of new things that you're educating people on in this space where they say, oh, wow, that is absolutely a problem I'd like to solve. Now they move a little farther down that funnel, right? Now maybe they start following you and now they see other content that you produce or now maybe they're kind of keyed into thinking about, oh, I really should redo my newsletter. Oh, I really, this is really basic. I, I plan to upgrade it at some point. And again, you move down those steps. So I think that that would be a little bit of a takeaway here is to not only have your strategy as much as possible be kind of multifaceted, but if your focus is on demand generation, to make sure that you are having content that is as widely valuable as possible, that is platform agnostic content to achieve that goal. Mm, I love it. That's awesome. And uh and kind of two points we'll, we'll dive into, especially platform agnostic, I'll, I'll get back to that. But uh, I think too, even talking through, tapping into your customers, tapping into your partners, tapping into your employees, um, especially, so employees in general, like when you see anyone creating content for their company, there's, I think there's, for me personally, there's an implicit like, uh, they kind of have a bias, right? Like, uh, even though your content was awesome, I, I knew there was some sort of motivation, right, to, to promote active campaign. And so your content even has to be that much better, right? It has to provide that much more value for you to build that trust with me. And I think it did. And, and, and kudos to you for creating that content that was valuable enough to be like, oh, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's not just trying to pitch active campaign. He's trying to build a relationship. He's trying to provide value, create that demand generation, et cetera. But what's really powerful, and I think in general, is um i mean there's like uh there's two i think there's two veins or two roads we're going down in this world especially like with ai and whatnot number one is you either have to provide a tremendous amount of value before they come a become a customer kind of high level right like if you're not if you're not solving a problem before they become a customer you're not gonna build that trust and rapport your competitors are probably gonna get to them first the other way to go to market is through relationships and what's really cool is you're doing both in this situation you're tapping into your employees your customers, because honestly, like our customers, they don't, they kind of care what we have to say, but they really care about what their peers have to say, right? Fellow customers, they really care about what other folks in the market, like uh, partners, agencies and stuff like that. So if you can get their voices talking about providing value, like one level, and I'm like, I'm literally getting goosebumps because this is like a, such a sweet combination of strategies <laughs> you're, you're, you're rocking here. Um, you're able to not only provide value, right? High level selfless content we talked about, but you're also getting it from the voices of people they trust because uh, once again, we have a bias because we're promoting our products, right? So uh, any thoughts on that or anything you've, you've seen success uh, with this kind of multifaceted yeah, idea? I think, I think just to kind of build on what you're saying a little bit, the way that I like to think of it is I came into the company and I looked and I said, look, we have a lot of content that is kind of directly promotional. And the way that I like to see it in a perfect world is if our customers can be the ones promoting and selling for us, if they can be putting out promotional content about how great active campaign is and all these great benefits, and we can stick to topical authority. So our focus from an employee perspective is just build trust, just share firsthand information. 
I have been mobilizing our team. We have 45 people in a Slack channel called Operation LinkedIn. And we have every week I'm monitoring, I'm coaching folks. We have something I call the 10K Club, which means if you get 10,000 views in a week, you get to join the 10K Club. And so trying to celebrate and help develop people that are new to the channel. And some of the things that I tell folks is, number one, don't be promotional, right? Don't just regurgitate blog content, post things that are system agnostic. Your focus is to build yourself as a trusted authority in the key areas that you operate. So that's gonna be different for sales, it's gonna be different for engineering, it's gonna be different for marketing and product, right? But your goal is to come out there and share firsthand experiences. What I've found a lot of success, and I do a lot of analyzing on channels like LinkedIn, is a couple of factors. Number one, share actual real firsthand experience of things that you are doing, right? There's so much just general, kind of like fluffy, high level. I give people the example, I say, if you go out there and you tell people, you should split test your emails. That's a useless statement, that means nothing to me. That's like complete general fluff. If you say, look it, we just finished a two month experiment, we ran four different tests, here was the open rate on all four of those, here was the click through rate, here was the subject lines, Okay, that's cool, that's valuable, right? Now someone reading through, I can actually look at that and if you're in my industry, if you're in my space, I'm like, oh wow, that subject line won over, I'm gonna go then take that, I'm gonna share that post with someone internally on my team who runs email and say, hey, do you think we might wanna run a test around this angle? It seems like it's really working for this other person in our space. Boom, that's brilliant, that's great content. But the, the hesitation that folks have is they often don't want to get into the details and they don't want to provide specific data. But that's exactly what you need to do, in my opinion, to be as successful as possible. So I think that you want to protect confidentiality where it makes sense. But a good example is I ran a thought leadership uh, ad around a deliverability consultation that I did. And I literally took the notes from that consultation. I scrubbed out anything that had to do with the client, right? I'm not gonna you know, put their, their information out there. But I then used actual real notes from that conversation. Like this was actually things that were delivered to the client, just slightly edited to remove any kind of like personalization. And so I think it's things like that are what actually build trust. And I did a post actually just yesterday analyzing my top performing. I said, these are like 100K plus impression posts. What is the commonality kind of between these? And I did a carousel where I was lining up a whole bunch of these. And one of the ones that showed up in every single one of those was using specific data and firsthand experience. That was the common thread. There was different formats, some use graphics, There's we can get into all sorts of different pieces around that. But the one common thread is they all used specifics. And I think that is such an important takeaway for folks that are thinking about how to succeed on LinkedIn, or thinking about, you know, the algo changes hurt a lot of people. So earlier this year, I was one of those folks, my views got cut in half on a week over week basis when that algo changed. And I was like scrambling, trying to figure out. And now over the last two months, I've climbed back and I'm doing better than I've ever done on LinkedIn as a channel, even before the change. And so you absolutely can stabilize, but it takes embracing some of those um, large tenants. And one other quick thing I wanted to let folks know is just a couple things to be aware of when it comes to thought leadership ads, some limitations that I found from experimentation. So one is it won't let you do carousels, which is a bummer because I really like carousels, but if you have a carousel format, it will not let you add it into the queue to promote. So that's one thing to be aware of. The other one is video clips. If you have a video clip, it will not let you add to the queue. Another, again, frustration, because I love carousels and I love videos, but those are two ones that it, I've seen, it just doesn't let us add it into the queue period. 
As well, if you have a really old post, if you try to promote something that's over three months old, I've also seen it just doesn't show up. It's not a selectable option when you go to that drop down as well. So just wanted to give folks a couple of very specific kind of tangibles. If you're trying this out and you get confused, you're like, I'm trying to promote this post, but I don't see it. Those are three reasons that it, that might be the case. Ah, oh, super cool, Casey. And I think you just literally practiced what you preached in the sense of like, uh, what are you seeing uh, from a practitioner? I think like thought leadership in general. Um, I, I talked about this on I think in the last week episode um, with in regards to like we are really or maybe a couple of weeks ago we're in the age of like the practitioner where people don't want this person that was successful ten years ago uh, to share about you know split testing like you mentioned earlier but like get into the nitty gritty like what worked yesterday what do you, what are you doing today what do you plan on doing tomorrow and I love how you said data, right? Insights, specific insights of like actual measurables. I did this, I achieved this. Um, and then the other thing you said, firsthand stories, right? Uh, of like firsthand experiences and things like that. Um, I love, we have a couple more minutes left. I'd love for you to dive a little bit deeper into, so it sounds like you're doing a ton of stuff to mobilize your team, your customers, your partners. Um, how have you gotten buy-in with all those said parties, just high level I'm specifically wondering, I can understand probably internally, obviously get the executive team maybe to get buy-in and, and then set the example, et cetera. I'm really curious, how do you get your customers and your partners to post? What I, I see that the benefit on the back end of you were like, hey, we'll we'll boost it, we'll get it, we'll promote it for you, we'll get your name out there, we'll get you free marketing, et cetera. How do you do it on the front end? Or is that is that what your kind of uh, incentive is that we'll we'll promote it more? But yeah, how do you get your customers and, and partners to post? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I'm continuing to experiment and learn more from. So I'll tell you kind of what my experience has been so far. So when I started out, I reached out to people. I had an email that came from me and I essentially just was totally honest. I said, look, I'm a new member to Active Campaign's team. And one thing that frustrated me when I came on board this team is that all of our content just comes from us, right? And I want to hear your story. I want to know why you use this tool. I want to know what's working, what's not working. And we reached out to folks that had positive sentiment from MPS surveys. So we sent out an NPS survey. We saw people that had positive sentiment, which basically means that they'd given us a nine or 10 in those sentiment surveys. And we just said, hey, we'd love to hear your story. That angle worked fairly well for that cohort, right? So we got dozens and dozens of folks who basically, who were just passionate about the product. They were like, yeah, I love the tool. It's done great things. Obviously you're not going to have, no tool has a hundred percent, like all your people are just geared up. And like, I love this so much that I'm just gonna go do this out of goodwill. So. First, I think, but I think as part of the kind of the strategy there is you will have advocates that will do that. So I think that if you're able to run any surveys, if you understand where your customer sentiment is, start with the low hanging fruit, start with the partners, the super users, the advocates, the, the people, you know, are happy and are successful. And I think you'll be surprised at how many of those people, um, if you don't make it too structured too, we didn't tell people like you need to post about this very specific thing. It was very much like, I want to hear your story. I was trying to put them in the driving seat and like, we're going to share this with the whole team and get everyone to hop in and, and activate on it. So that was the first piece. But then after that, we obviously realized that was a pretty finite pool. So I started creating a list with my team. I said, what do we have besides just monetarily paying people, which I don't want to do. That feels just wrong. Uh, what do we have that we can contribute back as a company? Like kind of a, what we can do for you, what you can do for us. So we started to build a list. And we're like, we have a ton of expertise. We have top leaders in all these different categories, con conversion rate optimization, PPC, brand design. Like we have all of these different resources as a company. 
how can we leverage some of those? Hey, you want to hop on a one-on-one -on -one growth consultation? Like I would normally charge 300 plus dollars an hour to do that. I will do that for free in exchange for this post. Like you start leveraging the value that you have as a company just in your human resources and your human capital. And that had great results. We had a lot of people that were excited and hopped in. There's also this idea of reciprocity. And what we, what we experimented there is we said, we're running a social campaign and we want to bring more of your stories um, to the forefront. But in exchange for that, we also want to know how else can we support you? Can we leave a five-star review? What if we got 10 members of our marketing team to listen to your podcast and leave you good reviews? Would that be valuable? Can we hop onto any of your social channels and engage on your content? Like what else can we deliver as part of that interaction that would be valuable to you? And once again, we had a lot of people that were like, yeah, that would be awesome. We would love if you would, you know, check out our podcast. Right. And so you start to find these levers of where's their reciprocity of value. And that's really when we hit the inflection point, right? Where we went from like, we're getting a couple of these advocates, we're getting some partners, we're getting some great content to really opening that up and getting that consistent drip of 10 plus people a week coming out and posting these great things. And what was so encouraging and exciting about it is even without these really strict parameters, like we're not telling people like, say why you love us over a competitor, you know, like we're not molding it like that but we saw so much of those that type of content that i would call like pretty promotional content that just got naturally produced people would just they would talk about that hey we actually were using this tool it didn't work very well and then we came over here and this is what we're doing now and this is the thing we love most about the system all the kind of points that we wanted to drive home they were just delivering for us i was like this is amazing and so my continual effort even now i mean we've only been running this for a little, little over a month so this is brand new right? And we're each week we're adapting and pivoting. So as we continue to evolve, my head continues to go to how can we support people? How can we add value? Active campaign is a 900 plus employee team. So we have a lot of humans on our end who should be able to jump in there. And so, um, it's actually something that I strongly recommend for folks to do, not just in this vein, but for partnerships overall, which, you know, we could have a whole, you know, another digression about how to do partnerships, but write down, actually sit your team down and create a list outside of just money what do you have to offer like and just literally start laying that out and we we put all of this on the board like i ran a course business where i taught courses on podcast guesting and on quora on linkedin and all these different subjects i'm like i will give people my course which i normally charge 300 dollars for i'll give that for free like i started brainstorming all the different assets and collective kind of capital that we have as a team um and i think that's a really good exercise for all folks to do just to know what you have as leverage in your pool Oh, that's cool, Casey. And I'm, we're going to have to have you back on the show just to go through all of that and in partnerships too. I love, I'll, I'll take you up on that. Cause I think we can, we can definitely have uh, have you back and talk more, uh, really insightful stuff. And I think in general, to just takeaways for folks, cause we're about up on time here is like big picture. If you're running ads, this is definitely, I think the future I'm seeing, and maybe in closing, if you could share maybe some, some early, uh, successes you're seeing from it, maybe from, from metrics you could share. Um, and then, uh, if you can tie that in with, uh, uh, platform agnostic content, and I think zero click content is a term that's been thrown around a lot. Spark Turo has, has uh, kind of pioneered that, um, Google is now doing that a lot with, with AI and, and whatnot, it's kind of a side conversation, but, um, yeah, just in closing, I'd love to hear from that. And then in general for folks to know, like, um, this is the future of how do you get, and I think there's a lot of great marketing principles that you have in here, whether it's leveraging the voice of your customer, leveraging the voice of your partners, um, and then taking that content and then obviously putting it through ads is just a, a sweet combination and uh, 
as ads have been, you know, you can do that organic too, right? It doesn't have just to be ads, but um, yeah, really cool concepts uh, in, in general. And then also the assets of your organization, that's so powerful. Cause I think there is, to your point, you have so much different, uh, um, you have a competitive advantage, just your people, right? So how do you're leveraging the competitive advantage of your, of your talent internally it has nothing to do with your product, right? Like a lot of the things you just mentioned have nothing to do with your product, but things that you can give back to the community, give back to your partners, give back to your customers. Super cool. So in closing, uh, two things for you to ask, if you wouldn't mind, just high level yeah. metrics. What are you seeing? You know, different conversion rates, et cetera, just kind of throw people out there, show people. And then if you could dive deeper, like just a minute into the platform agnostic, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so for sure. So I think oftentimes in the software world where I come from, we shoot for like the, the common number they throw out there is a three to one LTV to CAC ratio, right? Customer lifetime value, three to one. And this year it's been pressed a little bit. Some people are saying we actually need four to one customer lifetime value to CAC as like SaaS has been pressed to be more efficient. But as a barometer, um, we've been blowing that out of the water in terms of ratio of that right there. We've been getting 7% plus click-through rate. Now, I want to be clear when people think about click-through rate, understand click-through rate needs to be treated a little bit different from a standard ad because although click-through rate is dramatically higher than most ads that we run when you're seeing 7%, 10%, that does mean that someone's clicking to expand and read a post, which is probably a different level of intent than someone clicking on like, you know, to go to a page to start a trial. So take that with some lenience in terms of the click-through rate. But the flip side of this is the actual like acquisition from these are also quite strong. And that is what ties into that LTV to CAC. So we're actually seeing second and third degree. I kind of liked how you coined that Taylor. Um, second or third degree content that is directly producing sales at an <laughs> efficient LTV to CAC ratio in a short term which is remarkable. Like I wouldn't have even guessed that if you would have asked me coming in, I would have said, you need to layer this in for months and months and you're going to need to build authority. And it's going to take time because it's not, again, it's not directly promoting a product. So they're going to need to see one thing and then follow you and see another thing. So to already see efficient ads from a cost per acquisition standpoint that early on, right? With a 30 cents, 40 cents cost per click and with a high click through rate, um, I think it's remarkable. So I'm very, very bullish on the overall concept. We're continuing to experiment with different formats, different hooks, different types of content, um, things that I might call like indirect positioning. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that we're kind of thinking about this um, overall category. But I'm, again, very bullish from the initial data that we've kind of looked at. And I think we've promoted maybe 15 to 20 different types of posts so far, including both my posts and the customer slash partner posts. And the last piece, when I say system agnostic, it just means stuff that generally can apply to any system, right? So I, I work for a marketing automation company, but as soon as I start talking about active campaign only, everyone else tunes out. All the other people that are using those tools like, oh, it's not relevant to me, right? But if instead you take a layer up and you talk about email best practices, well, everyone who's using email can take advantage of email best practices. So now they can tune in, they can pay attention. And one of the things we talk about a lot in B2B is that a lot of people are not currently in market. So what, what you're doing by being plat, platform agnostic is you're saying that person who's using a competitor, if you talk about your tool directly, they're gonna tune out. But if you start building a bunch of authority, maybe when that person's frustrated or they're looking to upgrade or they're looking for a change, now you're top of mind as an option, as an alternative. So that's the value of having a platform agnostic strategy 
is you're building that trust for them to find out at a later date because they're connecting that authority to your name and your name is connected to your brand. And so that's kind of the totality of what I would say. And if I could just wrap up too in just one comment, I would say replicability is incredibly powerful. And so what I mean by replicability is when you write a post, ask yourself, can someone look at this and then go replicate and do a thing? Because a lot of times people throw out the words like actionable and other things, and those are fine, but I think I would almost try to even sharpen it a little bit more to the word replicable. Because replicable specifically to me means an insight that you gave can go be applied somewhere. So again, with the split test example, if I included the exact subject lines, the exact structure of how it was laid out, that would be, I think, what would help someone be able to go replicate versus saying, hey, our subject lines that use curiosity outperformed our subject lines that use mystery. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but it's not, it's clearly not replicable because you're not giving me any like specifics. Right. So I think it's just an important thing to walk away. Um, I know there's a lot of things thrown out uh, today's chat, but it's a good litmus test for you. Super great, Casey. That's awesome. I love you ending the um, yeah things that are you can re repeat and uh, that they can actually go do. And I think people there's a lot of advice out there. Right. And but actually what's tangible, what's like specific enough that somebody can actually go execute i think that content i mean that's what served me the most uh i know the content i consume the most is stuff that i'm like hey i can actually go implement it and then you have that positive feedback loop of like oh man this person actually changed my life it actually created what i call like impact right like not just value because i think value is really can mean a lot of things uh to, to a lot of different folks but like impact how can you create content that actually creates impact for people and that uh that the ability to replicate is super cool that's awesome, Casey. Well, we're going to definitely have to have you back on because I've loved this conversation. Uh, I learned a ton. I have like a bunch of notes. I'm going to review. I'm going to watch it myself again uh, just because this is such a great, uh, great conversation. I'll have to have you back on. How can folks uh, follow you online and, and keep up with your uh, content and thought leadership? Yeah, two channels. Of, again, we're talking a lot about LinkedIn. So I post a lot on LinkedIn. If you just go to LinkedIn, Casey Hill, you can find me. I'm the one who works at Active Campaign. So uh, go ahead, follow. I'm posting seven, ten times a week. I have a very high posting velocity. Um, and I'm posting about organic growth, conversion rate optimization, email strategy. And I try to have all of that from firsthand experience. So if folks are interested with that, definitely um, feel free to follow me there. I also give my email, chill at activecampaign.com. That's C-H-I-L-L -L at activecampaign.com. If you have a question either about Active Campaign or just about anything we talked about today, feel free to drop me a line. And I'm happy to get back to you. When you when you uh, we scheduled our, our podcast recording and I saw your email, I was like, oh, is, is this a mistake or did you have like a, and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, it took me a second. I love the email. It's great. Really memorable. <laughs> great little marketing. Uh, hashtag chill or, or something like that. I don't know. Um, but super cool, Casey. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, Taylor. Hey everyone, welcome to the GTM News Show. I have Kathleen here today. Hi Kathleen. Hey Taylor. Thanks for joining us. Really looking forward to our conversation. The reason why I asked Kathleen to come on, she is the SVP of Marketing and Member Experience at Pavilion. Uh, Pavilion is a, is a group I've been a part of for a little over a year now. Um, and bringing her on to talk about community-led growth. And this is a topic that's been uh, definitely popularized over the last couple years. And I think Pavilion has done a great job of, of leading as a great example of what community looks like. Um, but also, we're going to unpack it and how organizations can take this idea 
and ultimately um, use community to uh, grow their customer base, nurture customers, um, and then ultimately uh, go to market better and more efficiently. So Kathleen, I love for you to define for the audience, what, what is community-led growth in your mind? Oh, that's a great question. And I don't know that I have a good like dictionary definition, but how I think about it is it's another go-to-market motion, right? It's just like we think of inbound-led growth or outbound-led growth or event-led growth. You know, this is this is building pipeline and ultimately creating revenue from community. Um, and there are many ways to do it, but uh, community being at the heart of it. Super cool. I love it. And I love how you, you know, base it kind of under the go to market uh, strategy and uh, super, super helpful. Curious, uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, why is it important right now? What is, what are, what are you seeing in the market? Um, where have you seen maybe Pavilion or other organizations leverage community led growth and why now? Yeah, it's interesting. I think like many things in the world of marketing or sales, we we like give them a name and, and act as though these are new things. But the reality is that community is as old as time. It is uh, it is something that archaeologists study. You know, community has always been around and and traditionally we've thought of community as like the neighborhood we live in. But really, when you boil it down, community is about the common threads that tie us together and that um, and that lead to us feeling a sense of trust for each other and a sense of connection and belonging. And so that construct of community is really old, but the reason that the, the notion of community-led growth is so kind of relevant right now is that uh, COVID resulted in some massive changes, I think, in, in the way people buy. It accelerated things that were already happening. Um, you know, and I think seven, five, seven years ago, had you asked me how do people buy, I probably would have begun with an answer, something like, well, you know, when they have a problem or a question, they go to Google and they look for an answer. And, and people, you know, still certainly use Google and other search engines, um, although increasingly you might say they're using, you know, artificial intelligence solutions. But, but really the big shift that happened in COVID was we all were isolated. And so, so many of us, to, to preserve that feeling of connection that we might've gotten in the past from in-person meetings, from networking lunches, from conferences, from going into the office, we gravitated towards online communities and, and many of them exploded in growth during that time. And Pavilion is certainly one of them. I mean, we grew considerably during COVID because people needed a place to connect with others, to feel a sense of belonging. All the things I described earlier when I talked about community, right? Common threads that tie us together, a sense of belonging, a feeling of trust, a safe space where you can communicate with people that you um, have things in common with. And so communities grew a lot. And as a result of that, people experienced what, what it meant to be a part of, of communities, online communities. Um, and I believe it fundamentally changed the way people buy uh, and it retrained us instead of now going straight to Google when we have a question, many of us and more of us all the time are instead first turning to our communities and communities can live in different places, right? You mentioned Pavilion and certainly that's one that I'm really involved in as well. Um, 
But there are other ways people turn to their communities. It might be their community on LinkedIn of the people that they've connected with. It could be uh, it could be an in-person community, a local chamber or something or professional group that they're a member of. Um, and, and by the way, I'm talk- giving a lot of B2B examples, but certainly in our personal lives, we turn to communities as well. Our groups of Facebook mm-hmm. friends or Instagram friends or threads, if you're now on threads, you know, we have our places we go where we've chosen to connect with other people and we ask them for advice. So instead of going to Google and saying, hey, Google, what's the best solution for conversational intelligence software? I'm going into my community, in this case, Pavilion, and I'm saying, hey, fellow CMOs of Pavilion, what conversational intelligence software solutions are you using and which ones do you really like? The difference being, you know, with Google, you might get answers much faster, but the quality of those answers is more questionable. You know, it's a search engine and it's an algorithm that's determining what to feed you an answer for. And look, we're, we're all marketers. We know you can manipulate that and it's not necessarily going to tell you the best answer first. It's going to tell you the answer that is the most search engine optimized first. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we go into our communities, we get answers relatively quickly, not as fast as a search engine. But the quality of the answers is so much better. And so to, to kind of bring this all home, today, if you're a company trying to sell something to someone, if you don't have a community-led growth strategy, you may never even get at-bats. Because if I'm going into my community and I'm asking what are the top three solutions for X, I'm going to get a list of solutions. And now instead of going to Google and searching organically for what the top solutions are, I'm going to Google and I'm typing in the names of those three companies. I am bypassing organic search altogether and I'm doing a direct branded search. I'm going to those company websites. And at that point, it's not, you know, do they solve the problem? It's, it's, do they have the exact features I need and which one is best and whose price fits my budget, et cetera. So if you don't have a community like growth strategy, you, you're losing on business because you're not even getting the at bat in the first place. People aren't coming to your website because they aren't hearing your name in the community. Super cool. Thanks for sharing, Kathleen. And I appreciate a couple of things that stood out to me was first, like trust, a uh, big thing that stood out, and especially in this w- crazy world of AI. And um, I think even before AI, though, we were experiencing just this inundation of information uh, and every market being saturated, um, you know, competition, so many different, you know, every every uh, industry seems like there's more competition than ever with globalization, with digital transformation, and then also with just how many, you know, ads are out there, right? We're just getting inundated with, with ads. And so I think that trust um, is really fascinating now that we're in the AI world where, you know, ultimately, um, who knows who's creating this, act- this information that we're actually, you know, uh, uh, receiving. I just heard listening to this uh, uh, podcast by Sam Harris the other day on AI. And he was talking about hyper-personalization when it comes to AI and how in the in near future, the information we're receiving online will be personalized for us through AI by who knows what's out there, right? And so I think combating that with, with trust and connecting with people you trust and think through that, I'd love to hear like, what are maybe some key ingredients uh, if somebody were to build a community or even just tapping into community, what are those key ingredients of trust? And, and yeah, how do, you, how, do we, how do we build that or, or how do we tap into that, that trust? 
Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Trust is at the heart of all of it. And that's why we go to our communities, because there is a halo of trust that surrounds the people that we connect with in those places. And when somebody in my community recommends a product, it's generally either because they've, they have firsthand experience using it or, you know, and this is where the value of investing in brand is so important that the company has built such a strong brand that people reference it. And a great example of this, I think a company that did this really well is Gong. You know, if you, you get that question a lot about the conversational intelligence software. And I would see in Pavilion people mentioning Gong and many of them had never been customers, but Gong just had such a strong brand that it was like the first name that was top of mind for everybody. So, you know, trust, trust comes from different things. It, it comes from, hey, I know this person has used a product. It comes from, I trust their opinion, you know, but at the heart of it, it, it it's based in relationships. It's based mm -hmm. in, you know, you getting to know other people, um, de deciding for yourself whether you think they're credible. And sometimes that, that credible, the, that the credible nature of them comes either from you having firsthand knowledge of them as a person or the credibility of the community transferring, flowing through that person. And so I feel like this is, this is one of the things that you see a lot in Pavilion. Like, I don't know every Pavilion member, um, but I do feel like I trust the opinions of the community. And there's also like this network effect of if I go into, for example, our CMO channel and I ask a question like this, I make it 10 answers and people might have different opinions, but it's being able to see those opinions and that debate and feeling like I'm smarter because of it that mm. makes me trust the information I come with more because it's been stress tested. So, you know, that trust is so important. That's what drives buying decisions at the end of the day. If you can harness trust at scale through a community, then you're really tapping into something powerful that can drive pipeline for you. Super cool. I love you just, you hinted at that idea of the multitude of, of perspectives um, is also uh, really key in that where you're getting like you said, you're, you're getting smarter through it. You're getting different people's perspectives. Um, one thought that just came to me actually being a Pavilion member, because I've been members of other groups. And I think what the quality in, in Pavilion, and I think the magic in it, in, in a lot of it is that it's paid, that people actually have to pay to be a member. And so you get, you get people that are serious, that you get people that are actually like, hey, they're investing either their company or they personally are investing in this. Um, any thoughts on that for for tapping into like credibility or, or getting folks that are credible? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's right. There, it is a paid membership. Um, and I think I, I would actually say it's less that they have to pay and more that there is some gating mechanism in general, because there mm. are some other communities, some of which I'm a member of, that are not paid, but they're very selective in who they let in. And there's mm. criteria, right? You for example, there's a CMO group I'm a part of, and you have to have been a CMO that reports directly to the CEO um, in order to get into the community. So you know that everybody else in there has been in that role and that there was some vetting they had to go through. And, and Pavilion also has, by the way, some qualitative requirements as well. You know, you have to be at the executive level, et cetera, and then there is the payment on top of it. And so, yes, there's a, a certain threshold that you have to pass in order to get in and a certain um, gating that is in place to make sure that the quality of conversation in the community is high, that you are truly surrounded by a community of your peers. I think that's the other piece because, you know, by contrast, there are communities I'm a part of 
that I won't name, but they're really large. They're really noisy. There's a lot of people at different levels. And so when you get into a situation like that, you, you might not trust the advice you're getting because you don't know who it's coming from. And it's not just the size that contributes to that. It's the fact that like a few of the communities I'm in, there might be focused around like revenue or, or sales or marketing, but there's everything from like the SDR to the CRO in there. So I don't know who, you know, I don't know who's answering the question. Is it the SDR or is it the CRO? How do I know I can trust that this person really understands the complexity of what I'm asking in order to give me a good answer? So I think that that gating, that threshold, understanding that people have been vetted is an important part of developing trust. Super helpful. Thank you for clarifying. And I can, couldn't agree more that the vetting uh, that makes sense, whether it's a certain criteria or whether it's financial or, or a combination of the two. Um, super interesting. I'd love to kind of talk a little bit about, um, in my mind, I kind of see two opportunities for organizations. Number one is to build community for themselves, right? Slack group or, or uh, any sort, you know, Facebook group could be uh, another one as well, right? Um, and there's also tapping into community. If we're, let's talk about building community first. What, what are some maybe tactics or best practices you've seen from the, the success of Pavilion and, and other groups you've been in when it comes to building your own community? Yeah, I'll just take one step back before I answer that, which is sure. that I, I, in my mind, I have like this three by three matrix that I organize, I like mentally organize my thoughts around community-led growth within. And it's, there are three ways to, to approach it. You can build your own community, you can sponsor somebody's community, or you can like organically just become a member and participate, right? Those are the three ways of getting involved in community. Um, and then there are three types of communities. There's the communities of product, which you see a lot with software companies. They start communities of people that are product users. There are communities of practice, which is what I would categorize Pavilion as, where go-to-market practitioners. And then there's communities of interest, which might be like, you know, your HelloFresh. Uh, well, that's actually a community product. That's a bad example. Fitness communities, you know, people mm -hmm. who are like, I want to learn more about workouts. That would be a community of interest. Um, so you have those three matrices and, and there's a lot of like different ways you can combine those, those things. But in terms of building your own community, number one, so I mentioned it because you have to decide what kind of community you're building. Is it a community of practice, a community of product, a community of interest? They have very different implications. Um, you know, getting narrower as you go down, I would say interest would be the largest pool then practice and then product is a smaller subset. Um, and understanding which type of community you should create starts with what your objective is. You know, are you looking to improve retention um, and expansion for your business? Are you looking to develop customer advocates? That would really probably be a community of product um, versus are you looking to uh, drive pipeline for your business and, and top of funnel, which might be a community of practice. And then community of interest is a much broader play. I think you see that more when you have companies that are pursuing almost like media strategies where they're trying to build vast audiences. That's where communities of interest can be really interesting. Um, no pun intended. Uh, but, you know, in terms of there's a million different, like very tactical decisions that have to be made when you're thinking of starting your own. I think the most important thing is to understand that, you know, while you can see quick wins with community, it really is a longer term play. And so building up the business case for that long term investment is important because you do yourself, I think, more harm than good if you venture down the road of starting a community only to abandon it like six months or a year down the road. And so you need to be prepared to 
to be in it for the long haul. You need to dedicate some resources to it, not just financial, you know, having somebody who owns your community. A few companies ago, I was with a company called Impact, and I actually had a director of audience engagement and community who reported to me, and her job was literally to be the face of the brand in front of our community and to make sure that engagement was strong and to enforce the rules of the community and to develop programming for it. And that was a, an investment choice we made because we knew it was really important to have the consistency. Um, there's also the platform you build it on. There's a lot of great debate around that. You know, there's there's Slack, there's Discord, there's proprietary community platforms like Circle, there's Facebook groups, there's all kinds of different choices. And I don't, you know, there's no one right answer there, but the two questions I think you need to ask yourself are where where does your audience already hang out? Because to the extent possible, you want to keep the community within their workflow, which is one of the reasons Pavilion is on Slack, because so many of our members spend their day in Slack already because of work. And so, you know, we want to make it easy for them to, to also be in our community. But my husband has worked for a company that, that markets to developers and their community was on Discord because that's where developers hang out more. So you have to figure out where your audience is and make it really easy for them to participate. And then there, there are some cost implications to think about as well. But um, I guess those are the things that I would really start with is where are you going to build it? What type of community are you building? What are the resources you're devoting? And then finally, what are the rules of the game? Because to create a really good community, you do need to have a, almost like um, a contract with your members of these are the things you can and cannot do. So some of the big things for us in Pavilion are, you know, it's a no spam or no pitch zone. Um, and you, you need to make sure you're enforcing those kinds of rules in order to preserve the quality of the community. Ah, thanks so much for, for sharing Kathleen. Um, switching gears, you, you mentioned the two other areas, sponsoring a community and, uh, engaging a community or being a member. Love to hear about those. Yeah, so building a community isn't going to be right for everyone and not everyone has the like the true resources to devote to that. And so and by the way, you can also do all three of these things. Like sometimes companies do a combination of them. But um certainly you can sponsor communities. I mean, we love our sponsors at Pavilion. I would be remiss if I didn't say that. Um and that's a way to draft off of someone's already existing audience in a more formal and structured manner. So you know, the, the third option is to just join the community and participate organically. And you can get wonderful results from that. We have some members who've done that and they've driven tremendous amount of pipeline just by being valued fellow members of the community that people trust. And so when opportunities arise, their names get mentioned. But through those, many of those same people also have become sponsors because it gives them an outlet to do things like um, participate more formally in some of our programming or host events or be um, do webinars or create content with us. And so it, it just depends on what your objectives are and how you want to put your brand in front of that community and also how fast you want to go. Because I think you can get wonderful results. If you have zero dollars to spend, simply having your team participate in communities as meaningful members can really pay off. It takes a little bit longer to get there, but if you want to go faster, that's where I think sponsoring a community can really help because it gives you immediate opportunities to make yourself very visible in front of the members of the community. I love that. I immediately thought of like social selling when it comes to like engaging, whereas, you know, using your team on LinkedIn or other social media platforms, similar concept with, with a community, right? Just engaging with folks, providing value. Yeah. And that can be a low hanging fruit. Super cool. Any pitfalls have you seen that are just, 
either one of those three lanes that you're like, you know, common things you see folks that are, um, that they, they can avoid, uh, when, when investing in any one of those three areas. Yeah. A hundred percent. I have so many things, but I guess <laughs> I'll try to narrow it down. Uh, the first one is that, for example, if, if you choose to sponsor a community, you can't just sponsor, you're not going to get the results. You, you still need organic participation. Um, it's so important because simply cutting a check doesn't generate trust. And we are, we started this whole thing with trust is, is what really gets you those opportunities and drives interest in your brand within a community. And so sponsorship is an accelerator. Um, and it, it can help you get greater reach, but you still need to have members of your team participating organically as members of the community. When you match those two together, that's where the magic happens. And then similarly, or, or related to that, um, is to not approach it like you're selling, you know, don't send your salespeople in and just have them start pitching members of a community. Again, it's about trust. They have to earn the right to ask for business. And so the companies do, that do this well come in and their team members are just all about being as helpful as possible. We have one member, I spoke to him the other day, um, who they started sponsoring the community um, a couple years ago, but they've also thrown themselves in fully to participating as members and they generate 80% of their pipeline from the community today. And it's because I think there was one time where, where the head salesperson for this particular brand was the number one most active person in the Pavilion Slack. And that was because he was constantly just helping people and answering questions and offering advice. That's what works, not like, hey, everyone, who wants a demo of my product? <laughs> you know, and what happens today is when somebody asks who is the best X, and it happens to relate to what this company does, this company's name comes up every single time. And that's how they get business. Um, so that's a big mistake. And then I think, you know, moving back to like the build your community option, I think one of the biggest mistakes is what I alluded to earlier, which is, well, there's two. One is having a short-term focus and not giving it enough time to work. And two is not putting enough resources behind it and really taking it seriously. Super cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I think that's a good marketing philosophy or good market philosophy in general is if you're just going to throw money at it, um, you're probably not going to get as far versus thinking about how do you build trust? How do you provide value? How do you create that connection, create that reciprocity, uh, that rapport with folks. And, uh, I love that when it comes to the community, it's pretty powerful testimonial for getting 80% of the revenue from, uh, from the engagement. Um, and that's just from the sponsorship and, and, uh, engage site. Pretty amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. They're, they're killing it. They've figured out the, the magical combination. <laughs> Yeah, that's super cool. Well, we're about up on time here. Um, I'd love to hear how can folks connect with you online and yeah. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I would love to connect with anybody or I'm happy to answer any questions. So certainly mention that you heard me on the GTM News podcast and I'd love to uh, add you to my network. Um, and if you want to learn more about Pavilion, you just you can go to joinpavilion.com. There's plenty of information on the site, but also if you have questions, just reach out. I'm happy to answer them. Super cool. Thanks, Kathleen, for coming on the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and see you next week. Thanks, Taylor. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the GTM News Show. I've got a very special guest here today. i got Dennis Yu here today. Thanks, Dennis, for joining us. What's up, Taylor? Super great having you. So 
I've been following you, um, maybe a, uh, a, a, a mini fan, at least a mini fan. I've been, I've been following you for maybe five years or so and, um, seeing you, uh, involved in a lot of different areas of digital marketing. So I wanted to bring you on just to, uh, kind of go through a couple different areas that I, re- I think are really important. Um, things like the Facebook dollar day strategy, content factory, um, a couple other things before we get yeah. into that. Um, if anybody follows you on LinkedIn, which I recommend everyone should, cause you always post very interesting content. Um, I'd love to hear about what's, what's keeping you busy right now. Uh, what's keeping you excited? What's keeping you in the, uh, proverbial game? Well, for people that are in B2B and want to drive sales and marketing, which is what we're talking about here with the GTM podcast, I've been refining the dollar a day strategy, which you may have heard of the last 15 or 16 years to do micro targeting based on relationships. So for example, a friend of mine. He has an IV therapy company. He's got 30 some locations. He's selling products to 16,000 folks who buy his products. So it's definitely B2B. And the way he's grown his brand and been able to get more deals, some more franchises, get more B2B kind of customers is by interviewing the top people in the industry with a mm-hmm. podcast like what you have here. You know, this is a podcast to be able to share expertise, not sell anything. And this guy in the middle, Sam Tejada, he's so well-known in the industry that he's got the CEOs of all the other major companies. And so what does he do? Brings them into the studio, does the podcast with them, turns it into a book. Because imagine long-form content where you're interviewing an expert Mm. can be a podcast, can be a YouTube, can be an article, can be turned into a book, can be made a compilation, can be made – there's turned into all kinds of other derivative content, right? And so when you have all this derivative content, this is the thing that people don't understand because they just want to publish the book and that's it. Or they just want to publish the podcast and 23 people view that episode. What a shame, right? What a waste, especially you do all the video editing. So what we do is let's say we have uh, Dr. Robert Willicks here, or we have some of these other people like Ben Crosby here, Ben Crosby started tap out fitness, grew it to 500 locations. And now he runs drip bar, which is now at almost five, 450 some locations, pretty big, right? So what do you think Taylor, when Sam Tejada makes a post saying such an honor to have Ben Crosby on the show. And then here's a summary of five things that we learned from Ben on how he grew from nothing to 500 locations. Right. Here's what he, here's how he did private equity. Here's how he hired people. Here's how he set up operations. Here's how he did his marketing. Right. What do you think, Taylor, happens when Sam tags Ben Crosby and shares that on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on YouTube? On what, what do you think Ben's going to do? Going to respond, going to share it, going to amplify it. Right. But Ben might not see that because let's say Sam doesn't have a, any kind of audience. So we use dollar a day to target all of Ben's audience. So we go to Twitter. We can target any handle on Twitter, anybody, no matter how small they are. On LinkedIn, we can sort of target other people. We can still tag them. So every post that we make, which is honoring other people in the industry, we tag them and we're talking about them, not in a fake kind of way, not in a testimonial kind of way, but honoring them, sharing their actual expertise, kind of like what you're doing here, Taylor, right? So dollar a day strategy works super well when you already have B2B content that's honoring someone else honoring your top customers, honoring your top partners. So I did the same thing here. 
with an, I just happen to use the book here, but this is the number one selling book in social media on Amazon right now. And it's on TikTok ads and TikTok marketing in general. And we have the number one best-selling book in Facebook ads, number one best-selling book in Google ads. My co-author sold 800,000 copies. He's the legend, Perry Marshall. Wow. And we did the same thing here. We, like, who am I? Like a dude who's almost 50 to be talking about TikTok, right? So what do we do? We round up some of the top people on TikTok. And I'm not super well-known on TikTok. I don't even have very many followers, but I know a few people who have 6 million followers, 10 million followers on TikTok who are really big. And so I interviewed them, some in person. <clears throat> you know, I flew to LA and scheduled a whole bunch of these videos on the beach and in mansions and things like that to make them look good because I said, this is all about honoring you. We're featuring you, your expertise, what you did. And then they introduced me to all the other people. And I said, that is so cool. Can you introduce me to so-and-so? I'd love to be able to interview them and put them on the book, you know, put them in the book and share their expertise. Why? Sure. Let me just text them right now. So Taylor, I came into this not having the network to be able to legitimately say, here's what you need to do to be able to grow on TikTok and drive leads. But because I had at least one connection, I could reach all these other people. And so now inside this book, we have examples of B2B lead gen using TikTok. Because did you know that when someone says something good about you, you can turn that into a spark ad, which you can, you can boost their post. Did you know that? Mm -mm. That's the key thing about TikTok. That's the thing that Facebook ads doesn't have. Did you know that if you set your remarketing audiences, you know, your pixels and your email addresses that you can retarget into TikTok as well? Did you know that lead ads, which is what B2B marketing is all about, right? Generating leads that turn into phone calls, Salesforce, sales qualified leads, marketing qualified, like all that, you know, all the way to a close one deal, yeah. you know, in, into the different systems, CRMs, HubSpot, active campaign, whatever you have. Did you know that the lead ads that work on LinkedIn or especially Facebook, you can copy that same format into TikTok and it'll retarget the same audience and do even better. Even if it's a 50 plus crowd and you're selling, you know, enterprise software, whatever, selling things that are not like consumer 15 year old girl dancing, singing kinds of things. Did you know that? Did you know TikTok's the number one place for B2B? If you're an expert and you have some kind of knowledge and what you do is you just share one tip at a time in 15 seconds and that's your TikTok and you make lots of them because you just share one tip at a time. Did you know that? So this is what I learned from people who are doing super well on TikTok, especially from the standpoint of being some kind of expert or running a sales team or, you know, any like not the stereotype of the teenager that's doing silly things on TikTok, which is the same reputation Facebook had in 2007 that TikTok has today. But like Facebook back in 2007, the traffic was cheap. We could get it for super, they just, the, you could suck and you could do really well. And it's kind of the case right now on TikTok, but that's only going to last so long. So that's what I've been doing. I've been using these channels that are arbitrage that are cheaper, not because I just want to be on TikTok or I'm trying to be famous, but because I can get cheaper leads, better quality leads, cheaper leads. Who doesn't want that on YouTube, on TikTok and on Twitter. <clears throat> and so I'm not completely reliant upon LinkedIn, Google and Facebook anymore because, you know, I've had ad. I was I got kicked off of Facebook. <clears throat> Well, it was my fault because I lost my two-factor on my old device, but I wasn't on Facebook for a month. And I've, the Facebook team reset my two-factor and all that let me back in. But in that time, 
I've had to learn these other channels and I've learned how dollar a day works super well in lead gen in industries that are boring, that are not mm -hmm. consumer facing. That's what I've learned. And I kind of don't want to tell other people about this because I'd like to keep this B2B secret to myself. <laughs> I love it. Super cool. Oh man, there's uh there's kind of this, I'm almost seeing like this twofold uh, or I mean, it's a two combination effect of on one side, creating great content um, and then, but on the other side, targeting it to the right folks. And I love for yep. you to first kind of talk about the targeting for a second. If, if you wouldn't mind for folks that aren't familiar with dollar a day, just like 30 seconds on that. And then tell yep. me a little bit more about how about the targeting and, uh, and for like the folks in B2B that are listening, like mm -hmm. ABM, right? Account-based marketing. This is, yep. this is kind of like in that world of like super mm -hmm. hyper-targeted ads that are maybe one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to hear about yeah. that from a dollar a day standpoint, because I haven't heard that. Yeah. I've only heard from like more, I mean, I've heard from kind of the original uh, dollar a day strategy, but yeah. Um, from, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that, please. Okay, so John Miller was my client 10 years ago, and it may, I think we admitted on the podcast a couple times that the dollar a day strategy and the ads that we were driving through social media were his number one source of leads. And then eventually he sold Marketo, all right, you know, as, you, as you know, and all these other things. And in B2B, you have to have a very, very defined audience, right? You're not just reaching anybody who wants to buy Cheerios. You're reaching a very particular job title. People who buy products or work with this company also would like to work with your company. Like you, you know, there's ways of figuring out exactly who the ideal buyer is, and that's what ABM is, where you narrow it down. But with Dollar Day, we're we're doing that, but we're using the kind of outreach that an SDR would do is what we're using these ads to do. So the ads become your SDRs. How many people can you reach for a dollar a day, Taylor? With an SDR, or I guess depending on which platform. For a dollar a day, how many people can you reach when you run ads? On LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. How many people can you reach for a dollar a day? Guess. Yeah, it depends, I guess. Yeah, I've seen it all over the map. So take a guess. Put put out a, a number. Okay. Um, let's say uh, uh, 50 people. Yeah, it's about right, 50 people. So 20 to 100 people you can reach, depending on your quality score and how competitive that audience is and all that. So... If you can only reach 50 people, you better be super well-targeted. So if I'm selling enterprise accounting software in the you know, dental space to, to dentists who have at least five locations, not to any dentist, not to people that are going to dental school, not to Sally who's getting her teeth drilled, mm. then I have to be super specific. So how do I figure out the targeting related to that? Well, I'm not going to target just dentists. That's way too big. I'm going to target people who use certain kinds of software. So if they're using Dentrix software, they're probably a little more sophisticated. If they're using QuickBooks, that's pretty much like everyone on the planet. I'm not going to do that. So I have to choose the right target. If I choose the right target and I have content that's going to appeal to that particular client base where it's informative and it doesn't look like, hey, book a call with me for 15 minutes and let's discuss your needs. That's not what I'm saying. You, you can use dollar a day for that. The most powerful use of dollar a day is let's say that I'm interviewing someone who uses let, – let's say I'm, I'm targeting – just back to this example, 
people who own at least three locations that are med spas. Well, if I'm targeting people who are using Zenodi, then they're prob they're probably in that group. So if I target Zenodi on LinkedIn or on Twitter, or I target the CEO of Zenodi, or I target the conferences like AmSpa that these guys go to, mm. probably going to get my target. But if I'm spending a dollar a day and I'm only reaching 50 people, then I better have super high engagement. I better have super high relevancy. I better have content that actually works. So if I interview Sam Tejada and I target Sam Tejada's fans, how good do you think that relevancy is? Pretty high, yeah, especially. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, if when we do dollar a day, we're setting a, a minimum threshold of 10% engagement. So if, if you don't get at least 10% of people clicking on your stuff, you have something wrong with the intersection of your content and targeting. <clears throat> so I did a podcast with Caleb Williams, who is a lighthouse in financial services for insurance agents. So if you're an insurance agent, you sell over, let's say you sell overfunded life insurance, then you probably know who Caleb Williams is because he keynotes at NAFA. And so we did this podcast. We chopped it up into different pieces. And it's actually showing how he grew a seven-figure, eight-figure service selling financial, you know, selling life insurance, which is a tough thing to sell, you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And we targeted all the people who were members of NAFA. And we said NAFA Washington, D.C., NAFA, you know, Arizona, NAFA North Dakota, and all these different groups. And our link click rate was 37%. So 37% of the people, as they're scrolling through, they clicked on it. Wow. Right, because they saw some content with me and Caleb saying, "Hey, if you're a financial services advisor, then you know, then here's three things that you need to do on whatever it is." Like, oh, really? I need like I know who that guy is, so the targeting super super relevant, right? I'm not just targeting anyone on the planet. And so, of the 37 percent of these people that clicked on it that went to the landing page, the landing page says, "Hey, Dennis and I created this free course on how to do whatever, which is just a few videos. We call it a course, call it a program, whatever. It's just a video." Yeah. And you get 20% of these people to sign up and it costs us almost nothing because we're spending a dollar a day and that ads now run for a year and a half now. And it's still working at 35, wow. 36, 37% click through rate. So I'd say of anyone, if you're running ads, there's many things you're looking at, like how many leads you're getting cost per lead, you know, conversion rate, all that kind of stuff. But the first thing I would ask is what is your click through rate on your ad? Hmm. And if it's not 10%, you're doing something wrong, right? If, if your click-through I mean, rate, I, the average click-through rate is like half a percent if you're lucky, right? Yeah, that means 99.5% yeah. of people scrolled past you and didn't think your stuff was – you're spamming basically. You don't realize you're a spammer because you think spammers do Viagra. No, if your ad gets less than 10% CTR, you are a spammer. So dollar a day works really well. It's a, it's super laser targeted. It's not just spray and pray everywhere. It's like I know exactly who my target is. I'm going to show them high authority content. Where I'm sharing expertise and they don't know who I am, which is what the case is in B2B, 99% of the time, B2B, they don't know who you are. You think you people know who you are, but they don't know who you are, right? They don't even know who I am, right? I'm the dollar a day guy. Who, who's this random guy wearing red that Taylor's talking to? And who knows how many people are going to see this, right? But if we know it's people that are B2B and their marketing and sales is not doing as well as it could be and they're trying to scale it. And they want to run ads, but they tried to hire an agency or whatever. Then this is the thing that you need to do. You don't need an agency to do this anyway. Totally. I love it. So cool. And um, 
I think the standard of 10% click-through rates is I'm not a paid media or digital, uh, especially from the paid advertising side expert, but um, I've never experienced that. And I think that bar is really cool kind of in, in inverted way of looking at this problem of, of, you know, obviously getting folks attention number one, but then also actually getting a good ROI on, on paid media all the way through um, and starting out from the very top, you know, um, not, not trying to convert down, down below the funnel, which I think what most people, most people try to do um, with any of the, any kind of the marketing channels and, and distribution. Super cool. So I love dollar a day as kind of a, a framework for hyper-targeted, hyper-relevant, getting in front of your ideal customer, your ideal buyer. Love it from paid media. It sounds like um, there's a lot of, you know, cool stuff, especially in that book uh, you co-authored, but then, you know, following you, I've always learned a lot of stuff in what channels to go after. Let's just kind of switch gears and talk about content. You mm -hmm. threw out at the beginning of, of our conversation, a bunch of just like nuggets of gold as it relates to creating content. I'd love for you to kind of walk me through um, what it looks like. Cause I think uh, from my experience, you know, getting started is always hard, right? Starting something new can be always a challenge learning something new, yep. but webinars or interviewing people, um, what I'm hearing your strategy essentially is not even necessarily being the expert, the person that's creating the content, you are more creating a sh an environment where you're talking to experts and you're bringing the experts on to do a yep. couple things. First, just create great content, right? Because mm -hmm. you can always find people that are smarter than us to talk to to create even better content. Mm -hmm. But then number mm -hmm. two, you're also building your network, potentially, you know, um, potentially building uh, partnerships, I heard. Um, I heard also building even like customer case studies, like customer collateral. There's mm -hmm. all these other effects that you get from, from creating this content and just engaging in that relationship. Um, I can attest to all of that. It's part of why I do this show personally is to get to be able to talk to you, right? Build our, our professional uh, relationship, create great content, and then all the other, all the other benefits. But I'd love to hear from you. How can folks get started? Like if they've never done something like a podcast, if they've never done a course, you mentioned a course, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> should they talk to their customers first? Should they talk to a partner, strategic partner? Should they talk to a prospect? Where do you recommend folks getting started? So I didn't start my podcast until COVID. And I'd always been on other people's podcasts or whatever. Because the idea of producing a podcast or putting a book out there or just all that seems kind of scary. It seems technical. It seems like it takes a lot of time. But it's literally this simple. You just declare that you have a podcast. You know, here's the Taylor Wells GTM show or whatever it is. Just whatever, put your name, the so-and-so, your name podcast, or whatever the topic is, the problem. So think about what the problem is that you solve. It's the such and such. It's the lead gen podcast. It's the successful dentist podcast. I don't know, whatever it is, right? And you just merely declare that you have that. And then <clears throat> what did COVID teach us? How do you Zoom? So you talk to people that you know that are knowledgeable, people that speak at these conferences, people that you admire. They don't have to be customers. They don't have to be people that you know really well. And you say, hey, I'm Taylor Wells of the, you know, blah, blah, blah podcast. And I'd love to have you for 25 minutes on my show discussing such and such. And I saw, you know, last month you wrote this article about blah, blah, blah on LinkedIn. And I'd love to ask you some more questions, like breaking down what you mentioned in that article, because you said in 2023, the industry was going to be like this. And I just want to unpack that for my audience. And it takes some balls to say that if you have nothing. You have like, who the hell am I? I'm a nobody. I don't have a podcast. 
But you merely say, hey, look, I'm going to have you on the podcast and I'm going to edit it and put it on YouTube. I'm going to share it with my audience. I'm going to put it all across social media. You know, we have a, have a team of video editors, meaning you just hire someone on Fiverr for $20 that's going to do all this kind of stuff. And then when you interview them on Zoom, you use the standard thing. Hey, you know, ladies and gentlemen, today we have so-and-so on the podcast. This is such an honor. And so-and-so has accomplished all these things. And last month he wrote this article on LinkedIn. And today we're going to ask him questions about blah, blah, blah. And here's why you need to pay attention to this episode. Because if you're this kind of person and you have this kind of problem, then you're going to, this is worth the next 25 minutes for you to understand as we spend time with so-and-so, right? And you've made it very clear. This is not just two random people having a conversation. But this, this is an expert who's solving a particular problem, and me as a journalist, as someone who's not trying to pretend to be the expert, I'm trying to unpack on behalf of my audience. So when you said so-and-so, what did you mean by that, right? So then I record all that in Zoom or you know, whatever, Riverside or whatever your tool is, your iPhone, right, Microsoft Teams, whatever. I'm recording all of it through whatever your favorite webinar, screen sharing, Skype kind of tool is, and then run it through Descript, which is a Swiss Army knife tool made for people like me that don't want to mess around with video editing, or I just hire someone for 20 bucks on Fiverr or Upwork to do this, and then I publish it to YouTube. I transcribe it into a blog post, which is what Descript does, or I, you know, I turn it, I grab the snippets, because usually when you have a 30-minute interview, there's probably like five or six little snippets, these little like gold nugget, 60-second kind of moments. Then I share, hey, here's one tip. Here's tip number five that Taylor Wells shared. It's blah, 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 right? And then I use dollar a day against it. The key is once you've collected that high authority content with someone else who's the expert, if you boost it to their audience, that expert's going to share it. If you target companies in your space that are ideal companies that you have partnerships with or conferences that you would like to speak at but you're not – well enough known, then you just target people who attend that conference unless you get this huge, huge multiplying effect. But Taylor and anyone else who's watching or listening, most people that do a podcast or a book get crickets. Nobody sees any of their stuff because they're just on to the next episode. Well, every week I'm, you know, I have to do a podcast. Well, that's ridiculous. You might as well just eat a teaspoon of dog poop every day. If your content is not seen, and if you're not filming the content in the right way where you're elevating someone else's authority and then making sure that audience is in alignment with the topic that you're talking about, you've ruined it. If you fail at any point along the way in the sequence that what I told you, you've ruined it. You've multiplied the thing by zero, a million times, a million times, a million times zero. Any point along the time you have a zero, you've goofed this thing up. So you have to set up the interview in the right way saying today we're with Taylor Wells and we're going to talk about this particular problem, which is a problem that you – so if people buy who, who buy your product or service, you need to map out what are the problems that they have. Well, it's their lead gen. It's their manufacturing time. It's you know hiring managers. It's like whatever their problem is, right, which ideally has some loose connection with the product or service that you have, right? And B2B, that's what it's about. It's not Amazon one-click shopping. It's some, it's some deeper thing that warrants a conversation with the salesperson, right? So – if you are talking to someone who's an expert in solving that kind of problem in an issue that you want to be known for or should be known for, then you record high-quality content, chop it up into pieces, put it out there, run ads against it, make sure you have somebody on your team like some kind of SDR. Instead of the SDRs going out and cold calling and spamming LinkedIn, using all these cool AI tools 
that do all the spamming. My buddy Alex Berman just sold five of these SaaS companies that he calls it AI, lead gen, mail, gun, whatever these kinds of tools. But I consider them spammy tools because it's just automation of sending out messages in the hopes that because spam is about, you know, sending out as many messages as possible because, you know, only 0.1% of people will even look at it. But our strategy here at Dollar a Day and high authority content gets super high engagement rate and it doesn't look like spam. And people engage and you have somebody instead of people on your team calling them salespeople or biz dev, which just means salesperson, call them something like a success consultant or a so-and-so product expert or something that at least sounds like they have some sort of expertise or they're here to consult and help, not just take your money or collect the lead or whatever it is. And then when people see your high authority content and they want to talk to someone at that company or they want to talk to you or someone on your team, they feel like they're talking to someone who's an expert because that person's title isn't, you know, business development something or sales SDR. I mean, the last thing, like if someone reaches out to you and you see their title is SDR, come on, right? You don't want to talk to that person. You know what they're going to try to do, right? But if that person's title, if they're knowledgeable and, and they've also, you know, listened to the webinars and read the book and whatnot, then your expectation, <coughs> expectation as a potential client is that this is going to be a helpful, knowledgeable conversation. So it just shifts the whole the, anchoring from authority by having a group of a group of people that are expert and you just interview them on Zoom for half an hour because anything beyond half an hour, people lose their energy. That's just kind of how it is. Half an hour on topics that, that are that you've thought about that are elevating them and not your product is how you generate leads and you run ads against it. Now, the network of all these other people, they're your sales team. That's what people don't get. They're your sales team and they can sell better. They have a bigger audience. They're better known. It's co-opting other people's influence. Wow. I love it. And we did that, that could, that little, that little rabbit trail we, you just went on, we could have spent an hour talking about that, the power of even word of mouth or getting partners or, you know, the greater community, whatever area you're in to help advocate, to help ultimately spread your message. Um, love that. What I'm hearing is there's kind of two, kind of two, two big takeaways. We only got a couple minutes left here. Two big takeaways. Number one is um, interview experts in your area, whether people you know, whether it could be customers, it could be strategic partners, it could be prospects, it could mm -hmm. be just folks that you admire, like in this situation, right? Like mm -hmm. I've been following you for five years, like I'm gonna bring Dennis on um, and just invite them on, create great content, turn that into a myriad of different ways. One big area was turning into a book. I've done you, before we even did this podcast, you recommended to me to go and turn this, turn every episode into a blog post, which I do now, ChatGPT. Yeah between ChatGPT and a little bit yep. editing, I turn them into blog posts. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But even beyond that, you can turn it into a book. Love that. And all the other areas of, of social content. And then the mm -hmm. other thing in con, once you have that, once you have that great content, we have all the different versions of it that you can, that you can distribute, run the dollar a day strategy, um, and then leverage. And then the kind of the golden nugget, which is like this beautiful focus on the customer and focusing on mm -hmm. not just the sales cycle, but the buyer's journey and actually being more mm -hmm. of a, of an authority figure giving to people, turn your sales team, turn your business development teams into consultants, into coaches, into long-term partners or folks and build mm -hmm. those relationships. Super mm -hmm. powerful. What am I missing? Anything else in, in like 30 to 60 seconds before we wrap this up? Yeah, just literally take action because we listed 10 or 15 things right there. Just do one of these things. It's like the buffet, one bite at a time. How do you eat the elephant? That's it. And 
you know, you might be consuming this podcast and just like you watch Netflix or whatever, and you're just on to the next episode. But I, I'd say just press the pause button for a second and think about one thing you can do right now. Easy thing you do right now is have a moment of gratitude. So I can say, I'm so grateful for Dr. Chris Davis because he told me all about semaglutide and what that's doing for weight loss, right? Or just, I'm not, that's probably not a good example, but just like somewhat, I'm grateful for Jason Miller because he's the head of content at, at LinkedIn. And he taught me so much about how do you build a community of fans? And we were in London a few months ago and we went to his favorite Indian place. And or just, just, you know, if you maybe have like a morning gratitude ritual, something like that, yeah. if you just make one 30 second video like that every day, honoring someone in your industry, honoring a client, honoring, mm. you know, a team member that did a really good job and hit mm. their sales quota, I don't know, whatever it is. If you do that, and then you start getting into the, the habit of making videos with other people. Hmm. That's all you really need to do. Then hire someone else to do the dollar a day. Have someone else on your sales team, or I'm sure you got a marketing team that can learn how to do the dollar a day system. Maybe do it yourself the first time, but that's my number one thing. Take some kind of small action, which will yield you an initial success, a very small success, and then that will cause you to want to do more. But until you get that initial little piece of success, you're not going to want to keep putting time into it. That's just how people are. But take some action. You'll find it works. This is a, this is like gravity. It's a universal principle. There's no need to argue about it. It works. Just do it. I love it. A lot of the principles I've learned from you over the years have um, helped my career tremendously. So I'll attest to that. And I love starting with gratefulness and gratitude and, and, uh, and then moving from there. A great way to end it. How can folks uh, follow you? Obviously, you have a new book out. Easy. Just Google me. And whatever your channel is, you like to watch YouTube, you like to be on LinkedIn, you're on Facebook, whatever it is, I'm there. And I'd love to connect, love to hear what you're thinking, love to hear what you've done to implement. Because I love elevating other people that are taking action, mm -hmm. especially in B2B, where just 99% of people are just so bad. B2B marketers are so bad at marketing and sales. It's unbelievable. I can't even believe these companies are in business. But take action. I'd love to hear what you're doing. And then I can share your success. I'd love to do that. I love it, Dennis. You know what? If anybody's listening to this and does take action, reach out to us on LinkedIn. It'll be in the show notes. And uh, we'll figure out some way to, to elevate whatever you're doing or, or uh, maybe even help you take the next step um, in your journey. I'll tell you one quick thing. So my yeah. main site has a DR74. So from an SEO standpoint, that is sky high. So when you have some kind of story to share about what you did, what worked, what didn't work, you could record it in a five-minute video. We'll turn it into an article, and we'll make it a guest post. Taylor, what does it cost to rent a link from a DR70-plus website? And this is key for SEO. You want to rank on certain keywords? That yeah. means other sites yeah. have to link to you. That's the key with SEO. What, I, is the site, what does that cost? Yeah. Hundreds of dollars a month to get that. Yeah. And I'll give you a permanent link. So that will boost your SEO. I might do that. I'm you should. Everyone to it. Turn this episode <laughs> in, into a blog post because I mean, most people are so, you know, whatever, dependent upon outreach, upon, you know, ads, upon conferences, mm -hmm. upon like salespeople or whatever it is. They don't realize the power of building a reputation and the power of like, if you could rank on any keyword you wanted right now, Taylor, what would it be? Mm, go to market. Oh, go. Well, that's a, that's a tough one. Because there's the I can look at the competition words. on go to market, but maybe something that's small, one level very small, B two B marketing maybe. B two B marketing is still a really big one. 
Because think about how many other exactly. companies and how many articles, how much content is going to rank in B2B marketing. But yep. B2B marketing for so-and-so, yeah. you could rank on that. So we could help you rank on that because when you have a high authority site that has a lot of juice, you know, really high DR that links to you on the keyword that you care about, that's the core of SEO. And I won't go into this whole thing about SEO, but the 80% plus of SEO is the quality of the links that you generate. I know this because my career started 20 plus years ago building the analytics at a search engine. So I'm a search engine engineer. Very cool. Okay. Awesome. Well, somebody should definitely take you up on that. And I will, I will definitely as well. Um, thanks again, Dennis, for coming on. Super grateful for sharing. Um, definitely put uh, your links in the show notes. Um, thanks everyone for listening um, to the GTM News show. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks again, Dennis. Thanks, Taylor. Hey everyone, welcome to the GTM News Show. I got Balaji here today. Hey Balaji, how you doing? What's going on, Taylor? GTM News, mama, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Ah, music to my ears. I appreciate that. Appreciate the compliment. Well, thanks for coming on. I um, I've been following your your content online, and we both have. I think we're both fans of Anthony Canada, um, Audience yes. Plus, and his his movement with Owned Media. I had him on earlier this year and so i kind of yeah. wanted to do like almost like a part two or just an extension of that go a little bit deeper into building mm. an audience you have a bunch of great content on linkedin about building an audience why is it important um mm -hmm. and kind of this new new era we are in when it in in regards to b2b go to market b2b growth yeah. um the predictable revenue model uh outbound even inbound has been challenged um in my opinion, just because of so much uh, saturation. You know, everyone's yes. doing blogging, everyone's doing the typical yes. nurture funnel, everyone's doing lead gen, everyone's doing outbound. So I'd love to hear from you, um, just kind of high level, um, you know, wh what's your thoughts on how do we combat that? Um, and mm. yeah, just kind of run me down your, your whole idea as far as building an audience and, and how do we combat kind of the old ways that are really not working as well as they used to? Yeah, yeah, goodness. This is such a fun topic to talk about. Honestly, it, it ends up being like a therapy session for for us B2B marketers <laughs> like yourself. Um, I've been tailored in B2B SaaS for over a decade, you know, probably like a decade and a half. And I've gotten to see the market evolve. The interesting thing about, I think one's mindset, the way you approach, the way you think about your career really is important because a lot of the tried and true, a lot of the proven formulas don't necessarily work anymore. And so if you're someone who is sort of dogmatic about your marketing principles, your marketing beliefs, you might find this challenging. There's a caveat to that. There are some principles, so people will often refer to them as first principles, that tend to stand the test of time a little bit better. They're a bit more timeless. But a lot of the more recent tactical things, especially related to technology that's underpinning those tactics, those will come and go. So I started out, story time, you know, I, I, I'm a storyteller. I used to write kids books, you know, um, so I'm always, I'm always up for telling a story. So back in the day, Taylor, once upon a time, I was working at Red Hat, an open source, probably the largest open source company. Uh, they make an, uh, a Linux, a version of Linux. They distribute a version of Linux. And I was a young MBA charged with implementing their 
first instance of Eloqua. That's one of the very first marketing automation tools that was out hmm. there. This was 2005, I think. So this was the dawn of marketing automation. It was heady times. Marketers were finally going to be able to justify their seat at the table. That no longer, Taylor, would <laughs> we be called the the pretty picture department, right? Hmm. Um, so this was nice. This was empowering. So I was doing things like building lead scoring models and email lead nurturing sequences, and you know, goodness, we were getting all these great results. Back then, Taylor, you would send out an email, you get 90% open rates. You know, it was like, everybody read their emails. It's like you're getting a message from your mom. It's like, dear Taylor, it's the 28th <laughs> day of September. <laughs> and you're reading the whole thing. But as you pointed out, several things shifted underneath our feet to completely change the results that we're getting and to change the experience for B2B buyers. So hmm. let's geek out about some of them real quick. Sweet. Um, one of the ones I just talked about was the, the birth of marketing automation. That was around 2005, the, the mid 2000s, I think. So Eloqua, Pardot, Marketo, um, a lot of these names will sound familiar to, to our fellow marketers. Those sprung up. But that was on the marketing side. On the sales side, Taylor, you utter two words. This this is almost like saying Voldemort out loud. You said predictable <laughs> revenue. <laughs> I got to take you to task for saying the words out loud, man. It's like saying Candyman three times. So for those who maybe are not familiar, predictable revenue is this book that was published by Aaron Ross. I think he was the, the VP of sales or the head of sales at Salesforce. He published this book in 2011, and it, it chronicled the story of how he and his sales organization were able to bring in a hundred million dollars of, wait for it, recurring revenue for Salesforce. It basically laid out his model. Mm. And of course, Silicon Valley flipped out over this. Overnight, this became the sales Bible for Silicon Valley. So a lot of the way that B2B marketing and B2B sales teams operate together today is based on predictable revenue. Hmm. And predictable revenue, let's be fair, let's be honest. It's made a lot of tech companies a lot of money. But along the way, it's also burned, in my opinion, a lot of bridges. It's created a lot of really unfavorable and unpleasant buying experiences um, for comparison uh, taylor have you ever sat through a timeshare presentation <laughs> I, I haven't but i've seen the videos online <laughs> and yeah i've heard the horror stories <laughs> you gotta do it at least once in your life you okay. gotta do it taylor but she has a marketer I, it'd probably be interesting i'm sure i could learn something from it just uh the, so. the psychological warfare they they commit I, in during the you presentation hit the, you hit the nail on the head psychological warfare i love how you characterize that you should get one of those like hidden hidden cameras on your shirt yeah. <laughs> like that would be great time share. <laughs> i'm telling you that could be a show actually now that yeah. we think about it but yeah the, they're very very big pressure sales a lot of times the products do look compelling Right, mm -hmm. they show you these these beautiful beaches, palm trees, cabanas, and it, it looks great. It's not that the product is faulty, but the sales process is challenging. A lot of times they're selling mm -hmm. to people 
who are not in a buying cycle, who hmm. had no intent of purchasing this $30,000 product. They just wanted the free buffet that was promised at the end. And a lot of B2B sales, a lot of predictable revenue sales ends up looking this way. They, they might incentivize or coerce people into getting onto these calls and then they berate them, they badger mm -hmm. them with follow-up emails, follow-up calls, uh, incentives until they hopefully cross that finish line. Maybe it works for 1% of the people that they badger. How do you think the remaining 99% of the people that went through that same process and never bought, how do you mm -hmm. think they felt about that brand? maybe not so favorably. Hmm. And so predictable revenue continues to be almost the rule of law today, but buyers are revolting against it. And now in the past like two, three years, they're way more empowered because of things like, you might've heard the term dark social. Hmm. We could phrase it differently. It's Slack groups, it's communities, it's meetups, it's, me being able to meet Taylor in conversations like this mm. on Zoom or on Riverside and just pick each other's brain. Now, mm. instead of buyers going to Google as their first stop and then going to the brand website, signing up for a demo, doing that with five different brands and taking what the salespeople say as the rule of law, I just call Taylor up like, hey, Taylor, mm. I'm starting a podcast. You know, I'm trying to figure out what provider to use. Who would you recommend? Taylor's like, oh, Dude, I've been using Riverside for the past nine months. I love it because of this reason, that reason. Taylor's got no no dog in the fight. He has no. He's not receiving a, a, an affiliate commission. Mm. I trust Taylor. We have a relationship. That's way more trustworthy than going to the vendor's website because every mm. vendor is going to show off their strengths and cover their warts. Mm. And so buyers have just learned. We've adapted. We've evolved. Mm. So predictable revenue is still a thing. But I think predictably buyers are revolting against that and mm. they want to own more of the buyer journey themselves. Mm. Thank you for framing that. Super cool. And, I, and before we jump into um, the solution maybe to this, this problem, um, kind of just recapping. So for outbound predictable revenue, what's so interesting is I still see you know, AEs, SDRs, BDRs at like name brand companies showing yes. the success of their outbound strategies. And yeah. I, even Salesforce, like they were the ones that pioneered going to the cloud. So of course, when you send an email, when you call somebody, when you reach out to them, I'm like, oh man, Salesforce. I know if I've heard of Salesforce, I've heard of there their name. Like, they have so much <laughs> what we call as marketers brand awareness. That's it. And so, so much of like even outbound, I wonder like, it, and there's no way you could ever figure this out because once again, part of marketing is so hard to attribute so hard you can't you can't get inside somebody's head and understand exactly how they came to uh mm. to a buying decision or reached out but if you could figure out like you know especially for these like salesforce for example um how much brand awareness they have mm. and uh just how much you know when you reach out it's like well you know how much how much of a successful outbound is is actually because of brand awareness because brand awareness nothing yeah. to do with the tactics of outbound outbound was just a way of getting in front of somebody and causing them you know another touch point essentially um yeah. so i think about that a lot now especially with uh the companies i work with and consult with it's just um mm. it's it's so much around that brand awareness that really helps with that and then with the marketing automation kind of with 
inbound, right? That that with with that whole world, we we saw this. Uh, well, first, I think you said it earlier. Like buyers know they can they can te- they know they've seen the patterns, right? And we're trained. Um, our defense mechanism is to see patterns, right? And to, and to defense yes. and to, you know to have a, a defense against those patterns. And so yes. to be nurtured. Uh, which I think you you put some notes in like nurturing friends don't nurture friends or something like that which I love that that idea um, but just that whole world um, yeah we, we can smell it from a mile away right we we know when yeah. we're filling out that ebook we know that probably a salesperson is going to call us and so we're automatically yeah. you know responding like don't answer or don't respond to the emails or whatever That's and it. so um, yeah saturation in general and. And then also, I think we, I don't hear this enough as well. There's, there's a million and one ways to solve a problem now, especially since the pandemic. I actually was working for a tech company that was a local tech company, a uh, service mm-hmm. provider. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, because of remote work, they were able to go national. They're able to, re- to service people remotely. Wow. So because of globalization, number one, we have yes. an international market where if you're like a service provider, you can get anyone... Like, I don't, we don't hmm. even know where you are right now. You could be, uh, who, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter where we are because we're all in the cloud working together, right? So on service providers, it doesn't matter where you are in so many ways. And then on the other end, um, software. There's like so every day I find yes. a new piece of software and I'm like, that's oh, true. that's kind of cool. That's Add true. to my list. And I'm like, I have no, you know, I have no possible way to filter and analyze which software is pr- mm-hmm. appropriate, which one should I use? And so back to your point. We're going back to the good old days. Like my dad is a financial advisor and I worked for him uh, for a couple of years and it was all about referrals and getting, you know, getting, building and, you know, networking, referrals, you know, building strategic partners to, you know, Mm -hmm. and all those things. It's so funny because we're going back to like the good old days of like, you got to build those relationships. Um, And I think technology helps you do it at scale and you can do it much more efficiently and stuff like that, which is cool. But it's yeah. weird. It's a weird world um, that we're going back to that. And uh, but, you know, I think, yeah, so I think this uh, processing myself and thank you for bringing up those awesome points. I'd love to kind Absolutely. of any additional thoughts you'd like to throw in there before we switch over into how can folks uh, better position themselves um, moving forward? Man, you gave some really good examples. And, and I would just add, Taylor, that. I suspect the the methods that your dad has been using to grow his business and the methods that we see as as old school maybe never went away. Mm-hmm. Maybe we just added all this technology on top of those methods to scale, but those methods still fundamentally, I get the feeling that some of the most successful salespeople probably still build relationships, do a lot of networking, get you know give out a lot of value in different communities and then over Mm. time they have people come back to them so Mm. i think those methods generally are timeless Mm. it might be worth highlighting that i did a lot of my marketing under the department of demand generation Mm. and even the term demand generation sometimes could be controversial because if you think about it it's very difficult for us to generate demand where a company otherwise is not ready to demand your product. Mm. So you could almost think of the components of demand. There's this old sales formula called BANT, B-A-N-T, it's an acronym. It it was recently updated 
to they added one more letter and they changed the B to an F. So faint. So let me tell you what <laughs> faint stands for. The F is funds. This is these are the components of demand. The F is funds. Does a prospect have the funds to buy your product? Either they do or they don't. If they don't, you can't magically make them have the funds. The A in faint is authority. Are you talking to a person who has authority? Okay, we understand that one. The I is interest. Are they interested in your potential solution, your, your solution category? That may be the, the one area where marketers and salespeople are able to exert some, some influence, getting them interested. Okay, then the N is need. Do they have a need for your product or not? It's either a yes or a no, regardless of how good your copy is and how eloquent your sales uh, person is. And then finally, the T is timeline. Do they actually have a timeline where they're saying, okay, by this particular date, we need to have a solution. A lot of those elements of demand, we're not actually able to influence from the outside. We could mm -hmm. influence their interest, um, maybe influence the timeline a little bit, but apart from that, we have limited impact. Hmm. What that suggests to me, my interpretation, Taylor, is that one, for companies who already have demand and they're in a buying cycle, hopefully we're top of mind for them already. Hmm. Like the Salesforce example you gave with, with the Salesforce uh, SDRs making outbound calls, folks are probably picking up those calls like, oh yeah, I love Salesforce or I know Salesforce or I know someone who uses Salesforce. A lot of that brand awareness was already done ahead of time. So when people enter a buying cycle, Hopefully you've already done your homework so they know who you are and they're going to take your call. But Taylor, only maybe one to 5% of prospects in any market are in a buying cycle. Mm -hmm. The remaining 95%, that's a massive percentage. The remaining 95% are not ready to buy today. Unfortunately, most companies either ignore those people or nurture them. And, you know, again, we could talk about nurture experiences and how pleasurable those are. <laughs> Thanks for, I didn't know Bant changed to, to, uh, to faint. To faint. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of analogy there with faint. I don't know. Well, we won't go there. We won't go there. Um, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to have to look that up more. And uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think, I can, yeah, as far as the studies go, I think it was uh, Forrester that came out with that study of, right, like under 5% mm. of your any, your, your total addressable markets mm -hmm. in in a buying stage. And, um, you know, all the stats of like 85 to 90% of the buyer's journey happens before you even get to sales. Before, and yeah. So all these things, right, like whether it's dark social people or, or uh are finding different ways to, to or, or new ways, um, new ways, new old ways to, to yeah, connect. Right. Um, and even going one step further on the Salesforce analogy, I love looking at uh, public SaaS companies' disclosures, mm. their financial disclosures. Mm. Uh, very fascinating because you can learn, I mean, mostly around what they spend on marketing and sales and, and they oh. have to be like really transparent. Like S1s, okay, so S1s for like, you know, companies that are about to go public. Um, yes. Really interesting because they disclose everything and they have to disclose all the negatives from their go-to-market strategy, all the wow. positives. So you can learn a lot. I did a uh, Clavio actually did an episode on the show about Clavio and I did a deep dive into kind of the go to market strategy, some really cool findings on um, Salesforce. I love looking at their, uh, their numbers because, 
Um, so they do, it's like $20 billion a year in revenue, right? Um, mm. They're one of the most you know, successful B2B SaaS companies, right? Um, and uh, what they spend on marketing and sales is just fascinating because that's mm. the other component we're talking about here that there is this, you know, we all, yeah, it's just the, the amount of brand awareness, the marketing they're doing, the conferences, the whatever. Mm. Um, they spend, in 2022, they were spending, like the end of 2022, they were spending 45% of their total revenue on marketing and sales. So wow. they were spending close to $10 billion a year oh on marketing and sales. <laughs> and you're laughing, right? Because like oh any my company gosh. I work with, like whether it's a small SaaS company or any B2B company, like first of all, there's no like B2C company that ever spends that much money on marketing and sales. There's no possible way like any name brand company they usually spend five ten fifteen percent on marketing wow and sales uh because their margins aren't there right that's why SaaS is so that's popular a good point. And so that's right the, that's their margins, right. right they can just dump a ton of into that's right into marketing and sales but so this this company right that has like probably the best brand awareness in of any b2b company i i know of mm -hmm. um still spends you know 45 they've gone down to like 38 percent this year because of uh you know cutbacks and stuff like that yes yes but even still you know uh it just it, it, yeah once again it's kind of putting all these things in perspective of like uh, they still are investing so much into growth that's just mm. to get new logos right um not even mm. to service their clients or, or what incredible so, this is another kind of tidbit i always find super wow. fascinating of like keeping that in perspective of like um, you know, you can do predictable revenue, but are you willing to spend 45% of your, of your, your revenue, revenue. at a $20 right. billion dollar company? <laughs> are you willing to spend that much money, uh, to continue? And of course they don't just do predictable revenue. They do brand awareness. They have Dreamforce, mm -hmm. they have these epic, mm -hmm. you know, epic marketing initiatives. Um, so anywho, that's, I thought it'd be an interesting tidbit to throw out. I'd love to hear, we have a, we could probably talk for another hour, but, um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I'd love to hear kind of, we've kind of hinted at a little bit about like communities, um, yes. you know, building, building an audience we mentioned at the beginning. Let's talk about building an audience and what have you seen work really well? Why is this strategy creating own media audience uh, really effective? Um, maybe starting from the buyer's perspective, right? Like why do buyers want that? And then mm. from the company's perspective, how does it, how does it work as a, as a way to, to grow your business and get more customers? Right, right. Yeah. So I love that framing, Taylor. A, a lot of what us B2B marketers used to do or have been doing as part of the marketing automation wave was to try to capture an email address, often by giving up an ebook or something else of value. And then once we've got that email address, we've got them in our universe. Sometimes we might send them to a salesperson, which isn't a great experience, but Let's say they go to sales, they come back like, okay, this person's not ready, you gotta nurture them. All right, now marketing is like, okay, let's, let's put on our nurture hat. Uh, our, our first line of attack usually is an email nurture sequence. But those have a number of challenges. They get outdated fairly easily. So if you've done B2B marketing for any length of time, you've probably been charged at some point with updating the email nurture sequence. <laughs> And usually it's low down on the list of priorities. So you end up having people maybe who aren't writers. You might have marketing operators going in, updating the email sequence. And so the quality tends to slip. 
inboxes have also become really, really crowded. So even though you've got that email address, consider that that email nurture, it's different from a newsletter subscription. A newsletter mm -hmm. subscription says, oh, uh, Taylor's company, GTM News, offers this specific value on this specific cadence. I like it. I want some more of it. I'm going to sign up. And email nurture is like, hey, Taylor, we met at this networking event three months ago, so I'm going to randomly come to your house once a week and yell <laughs> things into your window. <laughs> Sound great? Awesome. <laughs> People aren't anticipating it. They don't know what's supposed to be in those emails. Even when the content is good, a lot of times, Taylor, I'll give myself as an example. When I get into my inbox, I'm often in pro batch processing mode. Like there's spam emails, there's reminder emails, emails from my kid's school, bills, a couple of newsletters I subscribe to. Oh, here's a message from my mom. I'm going to open that one first. We're in this just sort of grab and go mode so often with the inbox that the inbox has now become a challenging place. But it's still valuable if your message is anticipated, expected, mm -hmm. and people subscribe to it. So when you talk about owned media, owned media is contrasted with, say, paid media, which we're all familiar with, Google ads, Facebook ads, and so on. It's contrasted with um, rented media. That could be social networks. I'm sure we're all very familiar with the fact that every social network goes through this. I found a, a fascinating article, Taylor, that I'll forward to you. Mm, uh, it was uh, in Wired magazine a couple of months ago, and it basically talked about how every social network goes through this evolution. They start mm. out optimizing for the user experience. And we were all on Facebook. Some of us were on MySpace before Facebook. I might be dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us eventually migrated from Facebook to Instagram, didn't we? Because what the vendor will do is after they get a critical mass of users, then they start to optimize for advertisers. The users become the product. And so you start to get less organic reach. This is happening on LinkedIn right mm. now as we speak. A lot of us are seeing our organic reach drop precipitously because LinkedIn wants us to pay ads in order to reach our own followers. And so it's really important for us to, we have to continue to play in these shared spaces, these communal, communal water, watering holes, but we need a deep platforming strategy. You need to give people a reason once they found you on LinkedIn and they like your content, you love GTM news, oh, wait till you sign up for the newsletter and see what else uh, Taylor has for you. You have to give them a reason to say, I want Taylor showing up in my inbox and I'm going to look out for that. Like. Is that Ted? Did his, did his email come yet? There it is. Mm. Cool. I'm going to set some time aside. It's almost like how we set time aside in the evenings to binge our favorite show on Netflix. Mm. Like we're all pressed for time, but somehow we managed to watch hours and hours and hours <laughs> of that. Uh, I, I saw some marketers talking about Love is Blind, one of these mm. um, dating shows on Netflix just uh, yesterday on LinkedIn. So we make time for the stuff that we find entertaining insightful mm. and remarkable that's the new bar so mm. the, the and i want to get your take on this taylor the bar for b2b content used to be informational mm. how to seo like you know 
I'm going to type, how do I get the answer? How do I build a rabbit hutch? Hmm. Enter. It gives me the answer. Awesome. And then the idea was that, oh, uh, let's say Taylor provided me that information. That was so helpful. I want to stay close to Taylor to get more helpful information. Well, now, hmm. how to information is so commoditized, and then you add AI, chat GPT on top of that, information is no longer table stakes. Hmm. Now, in addition to being informational, You've got to be insightful, so give them the aha moments. You've got to be entertaining. It doesn't always mm. mean being funny, but we're all emotional beings, so find mm. a way to connect with me. And then, mm. ideally, you're also remarkable. Remarkable mm. literally means the experience was so compelling, so visceral, I want to remark about it, talk mm. about it to somebody else. That's the new bar for B2B content. I love it. I couldn't agree more. Um, a side note: How are you doing on time? I can go for a few more minutes. I know we're about um, up. Yeah, I'm good on. I'm good on time. I don't have a okay, meeting cool, after this. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thanks. Because um, I think this. I would love for us to dive a couple more minutes into this because I think it's really interesting Definitely. and I've seen a lot of this. Um, I think in general. So yeah, back to the nurturing. Just kind of highlight on that. Um, yes. I have this concept of subscription-based MQLs, um, hmm. and it kind of ties into that idea of you're like, hey. These are folks that are expecting to receive additional mm. content from you. A white paper, an ebook, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a one time. They're not expecting to receive any more information from you. There's no commitment to receiving any more information from you. Yes. A series, a newsletter, a podcast, yes. um, all those things, there's ex expectation of receiving more content, right? And so I think mm -hmm. that's, that's what you're hitting at as far as yeah. like, uh, when people aren't expecting to receive any more content when they give you your email address, um, and yet we still send them content. And so there's a misalignment on expectations. And I think in That's general, right. also what you're talking about too, as far as I love that idea of being you know, remarkable and um, entertaining and insightful mm -hmm. is, is really about exceeding the buyer's expectations. I think mm -hmm. the buyer's expectations are like, <laughs> are, are, are pretty low, but they've only gone higher and we haven't matched it, right? Like we've just right. continued to do old, you know, previous taxes when you're talking about you know, um, I always give these stories of uh, my nieces and nephews. I don't have any kids mm. myself. We hope to have some down the road, but mm. um, I, my nieces and nephews, right? Like my five-year-old niece, Maggie, she, six-year-old niece, Maggie, she talks about how like the other day she was like, she comes in, she's like, ah, I have to, I just got, we ordered some new shoes and I have to wait two days for ah. my new shoes to come. And she's just like so upset about having to wait two days. Amazon, then, you've ruined everything. <laughs> exactly. And then my uh, another story, my nephew Jack is like on his parents' phone and he, he comes into the room and he's like, Amazon is 11 stops away. And he's like waiting. He's like, he's watching. He's oh watching the truck. Oh my God. He's Whoa, watching the truck come and he's thing? like, it's 11. He's 11 oh stops away. And I'm like, I remember having these moments of like, you know, maybe, you know, boomers, Gen X, uh, millennials, maybe aren't aren't quite there as far as expectations, but definitely mm. Gen Z are and, and younger mm. as far as the, you know, instant gratification, having things quickly. So just in general, I think that's why we yes. see like product led growth. That's why we see, you know, really insightful content, all these different movements mm -hmm. uh, in the B2B world because of buyers expectations have changed. Um, and they want things, you know, they want things now and they want things on, on their level where when they want that's it. Right. True. And so that's I think true. when it comes to content, um, 
and engaging folks um, and in general nurturing. I think it's I think also too, I think about this this idea of um, who do we think we are when we think we can create the perfect buyer's journey? Wow. Like when you can create a nurture sequence that's exactly going to hit them right where they're at and right. just convert them. And, you know, I think with lots of data, I think there is, we've gotten this like, um, this God syndrome where we can like mm. create this perfect buyer's mm -hmm. journey and, mm -hmm. and B2C there, there's some of that because the buyer's journey is so, uh, it's so much shorter and it's, it's shorter. It's, yeah. You know, it's shorter and it's there's it's it's maybe more emotional in some ways. I think B2B is still super emotional and there's you know, there's so much at stake in, you know, their job, their careers when they're making That's a true. buying decision. Yeah. But the buyers, you know, B2C side, I think we've we've gotten the performance marketing and getting that quick, you know, uh, and using data to be able to reverse engineer. Yes. And honestly, especially if you're an enterprise B2B or once you get to the really complex sales cycles. Mm -hmm. I've never seen one model that could that could predict like oh if you hit these twelve people at these certain times and right. so it just it just I think it doesn't work uh, people are so much more complex than that uh, yeah complex that yes. I think we have to go back to what you're talking about which is how do we invest in folks how do we build that relationships how do we give so much value mm -hmm. that. Uh, when they are ready or when you have built that relationship with them, they're willing to engage. And um, so, yeah, I think in general, I think there's this, there's so much at, at, at play in, in all of this, but the instant gratification, the buyer's you know expectations have changed um, and there's so much noise. And who do we think we are that we can create this amazing, <laughs> that. we can reverse engineer these super complex journeys because um, I don't think we ever could. I think that market automation was a farce because it gave us, mm. you know, we had all these things, other things at play, and then the market automation told us what we wanted to hear. Mm. Uh, but in all reality, there was all these other things like brand awareness that was happening. It's true. Um, or networking or customer advocacy or referrals, yeah. et cetera. So um, I think, and then also, when it comes to content, you know, creating content that once again is more subscription based, like what you're talking about, like they're expecting mm. to receive more content from you. Um, so you can build that relationship. And because um, what I'm seeing with my clients is like, it's taking more in interactions, it's taking more touches, <laughs> it's taking longer. Right. Um, and, and there's just, you know, so much noise. So we have to play that long game, invest with great content. Um, I'd love to hear just in closing, um, creating remarkable content, engaging hmm. content, entertaining hmm. content is really hard. Yes, like, there's it no, is. <laughs> you know, and unless you're like, unless oh. like, unless you are like Salesforce that have these massive budgets, how can the rest of us mere mortals that don't, you know, can't pull off, you know, these crazy feats? Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Any takeaways? Any like go-to things? Maybe for like you know, especially early stage companies, startups, like any thoughts you have as far as like, how do we tap into mm -hmm. maybe our own brilliance, you know? Right. And I think about that a lot of like, each person has their own story, each person True. has their own, you know, mindset and worldview and perspective that they can share with the world. But yeah, just any thoughts True. in closing about how do we tap into that? How do we, cause it's hard and there's just so much content out there. Yeah, um, yeah how do we, how do we do yeah. that? With some stepping stones. I love that question. I'll give you a, an analogy, Taylor. So uh, I'm still tickled by the way of the story of your nephew and nieces. We'll come back to that after the recording. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. But but I'm going to talk about my kids. So I've, uh, uh, my wife and I have two sons. 
Uh, mm. They're 16 and 13 years years old. So I've been coaching my younger son in soccer for the past five cool. or six years. And I've evolved as a coach. I coached my older son for a year as well, his first year in soccer. And when I coached him, unfortunately, you know, in retrospect, I was not a very good coach. I was mm. sort of the disciplinarian, you know, my way or the highway, mm. you know, do these drills. And it was taking the joy out of the hmm. whole experience. Hmm. So eventually I learned and I sort of mellowed, but I've since learned that some of the greatest and most creative soccer players in the world come from Brazil. And the reason there's so many great soccer players coming from Brazil, as opposed to other countries, is that these kids play soccer at school, they play soccer as soon as they're done with school, even in the, the poor neighborhoods, they've got soccer field, these concrete soccer fields, the kids immerse themselves in it, they don't have coaches, they're having fun, what does all that mean? They're experimenting a lot, they're trying and failing a lot, and a lot of the stuff they do won't work, but then they also have these moments of genius, that they're like, whoa, that really worked well, and then they run with that. I think we're seeing a lot of these moments of genius um, on the B2C side, we're seeing a lot of these moments of genius with creators on TikTok, YouTube. We're seeing a lot of these moments of genius in the streaming wars. I mean, the level mm. of creativity, Taylor, mm. coming out of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney, HBO. Why is none of that trickling into B2B? We've got to mm. actually allow some of those influences, I think, to come in. Mm. And we have to play with those things. For anyone who might tell you, aha, I've got the elixir, I've got the panacea, this is the exact mm. formula, my 10-step mm. formula, they might be trying to sell you something. I think <laughs> in reality, we need to hold on to those first principles, like, mm. like Taylor's dad, right? It's about relationships, it's about giving value earnestly with no expectation of receiving. Um, it's about being part of the community. And then on top of that, we can experiment with ways to express the value that we have to give. Um, so one of the ways that I'm expressing my value, for example, and I'm helping companies to do this, I'm inspired by, of all things, reality shows. Mm. What in the world? Specifically reality competitions. So mm. Taylor, did you ever watch any of these shows? Uh, Survivor, American mm. Idol, The Apprentice, yep. any of those? Yep. These are largely unscripted shows. And yet Survivor, for example, has, I think they're on season 45. Wow. What other franchise do you know <laughs> that could make huh. 45 times the same huh. concept? They could put out this 45 times and still make millions of dollars. There's something there. And mm. so I think giving ourselves the opportunity to play with these concepts while still trying to service our business objectives, we can't lose sight of that. That's where we're gonna find the next home runs. So I'm gonna close it with this. Remember how we, we, we kind of beat up on email nurturing a little bit, but I'm starting to tell some of my clients, you know, the intent behind email nurturing is not all bad. You're trying to actually provide real value to people hmm. who are whom you can actually help hmm. the knock on it is that they didn't ask for that they didn't hmm. ask for it 
what if we could nurture in public instead of nurturing almost like in this dark seedy alley where it's like <laughs> hey hey want some emails you want some emails <laughs> no close your trench coat i don't want your emails right instead of doing it that way what if we took those that valuable content and we nurtured on social networks hmm. what if instead of having a unidirectional nurturing where it's like trust hmm. me this is good for you what if we open it up and created a an omnidirectional experience where people your your prospects got to learn from you compete against each other network with each other these are the types of things we can play with to find that next level of remarkability but it's never divorced from our ultimate business objectives oh i love that that's super cool and um, I really want to have a follow-up conversation with you, whether on the show or, or separately around the reality uh, shows, because I think that that's fascinating because I think it creates, there's so much, especially in the B2B world, it's so, um, I mean, you see like on TikTok or any of the sh you know short form um, uh, plot, YouTube shorts, et cetera, mm -hmm. Instagram reels, the ones that usually the videos that do the best are the ones that are the least edited, the most that's transparent, because in this world, we want transparency, right? Especially the internet, yes. there's this, you can kind of hide behind editing and 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 with AI. Oh my gosh, with AI <laughs> transparency is going to be like oh the number gosh. one thing, right? Oh my gosh, you're and right. So you're right. The unedited, the like stripped back. Here's us, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, with the ums and the ahs, mm -hmm. and even with this show, I do very light. I do virtually no editing because I mm. want it to be like you're. They're, they're just like hanging out yeah, with us, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, because so much of it is uh, just so, uh, especially in the B2B world, we want to make it professional and we lose out on the human element, the transparency yes. element. Um, so I'll have to follow up with you on that and uh, super interesting. And then the nurturing in public, that's a cool concept too of the, especially with communities like social selling, um, to be able to connect with people one-on-one. -on -one. There's some cool ideas there. So I'm excited yeah. to follow you. Um, yeah. How can folks follow you online to kind of keep up with your ideas, connect with you maybe for consulting or services? Yeah, so Taylor, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place to connect with me. I'm on there every day, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife. <laughs> but that's actually the only uh, social network that I use now. Um, cool. I'm off Facebook. I don't really use Instagram anymore. I'm, I hope to jump onto TikTok at some point, but for now, LinkedIn is sort of the central hub. So yeah, hit me up on there. I'd love to talk shop about marketing, about soccer, or about Amazon delivery trucks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that sounds great. I'll put your links in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Great meeting you. Um, yeah, we'll definitely have to continue talking and maybe have you back on the show. So I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, be sure to uh, check out next week's episode and we'll catch you later. Hey everyone, welcome to the GTM News Show. I got Brendan here today. Hey Brendan. Hey man, how are you? I'm excited about this. This is gonna be awesome. I'm over caffeinated. Uh, yeah. Like my <laughs> coffee cup is as big as my head. Uh, so I'm ready. And you have Marcus Aurelius uh, staring down at you. We were just talking about that. Yeah, man. And my collection of like vaguely entrepreneurial uh, and whatever else Funko Pops on the other side. No pressure. I love it. Like yeah, have, it take, takes a village, right? Awesome. Well, I want to have Brendan on. He actually, actually, I featured him in uh, the newsletter a couple weeks ago, uh, and uh, we connected and uh, wanted to have have him on the show. 
um, for a lot of different reasons. First, he creates a lot of great content online uh, around uh, B2B marketing, content, etc. And even before the hit record, we were talking about, you know, what would be a great title for this. And I think it's a combination of two things, like how to create great content to go viral on LinkedIn and other platforms, but then also drive revenue. Because I think you can uh, obviously create lots of content that maybe gets impressions and attention, but doesn't necessarily deliver business outcomes. So Brendan, let's kind of frame up the conversation um, for the audience on how you view this idea of uh, content IP um, and uh, what does that mean to create content that can that can really get a lot of impressions, but also drive revenue. Yeah, you know, I noticed two things happening in the market. The first one was that simply every company, I work primarily with uh, SaaS and software companies. I felt like everybody was making a category. Um, I remember when I joined Active Campaign, I went in-house at Active Campaign for just shy of two years. And uh, our CMO uh, rebranded Active Campaign from email marketing to customer experience automation. Fine, great, no judgment. Um, the problem was when I was going to Active Campaign, I was coming from a, a SaaS marketing agency where I was the SEO director. And you would think at a software marketing agency, they would well be well aware of all the big like MarTech companies out there. And the response when I said, hey, I'm leaving, I'm going to Active Campaign, 50% of the people were like, hey, congratulations, that's a huge company, great product, awesome. The other half of the people, software marketers, had never heard of Active Campaign. They're like, oh, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, they have 160,000 customers and roughly, you know, $165 million in revenue. How have you never heard of them? So we take this company who has a huge customer base, huge revenue, but an awareness problem where people don't know them. And we're going to take them out of the category that they have are, are still not fully in, which is email marketing and marketing automation. And we're going to make them this new thing, customer experience automation. You can see how that would fall flat. So I noticed my company and all these other companies creating categories. Everybody had a buzzword of we are this new thing, right? I think everybody got like, really excited about like drift and gain site creating categories. Um, the problem was when you create a category, you have to ride the wave that's already happening. You're saying, I see this thing happening in the world. I'm going to name it and we are going to exist to help people ride this wave with us. We see this all the time in just the real world, right? Well, like Taylor, the, in, in the real world, we see uh, these things called conceptual scoops. And uh, I hadn't heard that phrase until a couple of years ago but I had seen them in the wild constantly. Uh, this idea of uh, the great resignation is a conceptual scoop. Uh, hmm. It was seeing what was happening in the market. Same with quiet quitting, right? We're all B2B professionals, we're all aware of what those are. This was journalists seeing a thing happening in the world, a problem that was going on and just giving a name to it. There was no stats or data necessarily at first, but they're like, I think this thing is happening, let's give it a name. And I think, this is my uh, hypothesis, is that companies would be much better served naming the problems that their hmm. customers have than naming their solutions. Hmm. We tend to skip that part of category creation where we name the old game, we name the problems. Andy Raskin writes a lot about this really, really well. I love him. We skip over that part and we jump right to naming our solutions and it falls flat and we you know, we put our heart and soul as marketers into the marketing that we're creating, the work that we're doing, and for it to not resonate and then kind of go, oh, 
why did that happen? Most often it's just because we skip the problems. Mm, Brendan, that's awesome. And I love uh, starting with category creation and I so much of uh, uh, just confusion in the market when you come up with these new categories, right? How do I compare you? How do I, do you compete with something? Do you replace something? How do you contrast? And well, our fear avoidant, right? How does this all match up to what I'm currently doing and other things? And I think there's actually, you know, Simon Sinek, start with your why. With the category creation, it's like, hey, how are we different? What's my why? How are, it's like branding, right? Like how do we position ourselves versus everyone else? And how do we stand out versus and then there's also the other end of it, which is like uh, strategic narrative, right? Which is what you're talking about with Andy Raskin and, and talks about really what's from the position of, of the consumer, right? And I think we're missing kind of both of those things. You do need your why. You do need to be like, what's, how are we different? Why did we get here? But then also the strategic narrative and even combining like uh, story brands, the, hero the hero's journey, uh, putting yourselves in the customer's shoes and- Just Joseph Campbell. Oh, Joseph Campbell. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I have such a gripe with StoryBrand. I'm going to forgive me for five yeah, seconds. Please, let's do it. StoryBrand is a whole book, a multi million dollar business that literally rips off the life's work mm. of Joseph Campbell and mm. does not mention him anywhere in it. Donald Miller says, I noticed this when I was watching Indiana Jones and Star Wars. George Lucas writes, he's like, I just followed the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. Mm. I have a big issue with building, literally taking a person's life work, market twisting it and being like, it's mm. story brand now and things mm. like that. But the hero's journey is real. Like Joseph yeah. Campbell went and did the research hero with a thousand faces, like found that this is like the monomyth that has existed in human culture all over the world since the beginning of any sort of recorded history and even oral storytelling. So it absolutely works. But the problem is that inciting event that causes the hero to cross the throat. Like we skip that part. We all skip mm. to like the lightsabers and the death star and all mm. these things. And we're like, yeah, but mm. like Luke didn't want to be a loser on Tatooine. Mm. Those core problems that push people to make a change in the first place. Thanks for the good call out, uh, Joseph Campbell. And also I think in that there is creating that connection with your audience and your buyer. Yeah. I think there's, there's a million and one ways to solve a solution, right? There's a hundred thousand SaaS platforms with globalization. There's so many service providers, everyone's competing for your, for their business. And so I think when you really go deep into a problem, uh, not only shows you care and you have empathy and you understand your buyer, but you build that trust. Right. And I think that's something I notice a lot of times too, when we don't spend enough time uh, on the problem and oh, really don't even understand the problem. Right. I think that's the biggest problem with sales marketers. Anyone in go to market is we're usually not our buyer, right? We've never been in our buyer's shoes. And so actually I have this analogy of, uh, of, uh, be like Daniel day Lewis. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis has won yeah. more Oscars than any other for best breath actor than any other person. And he takes years to get into his character, right? He quit acting because it was too intense. He, he was in character for too long. Um, and so I think about like, that's getting into that problem, getting into your character's problem, getting into the mind of, uh, of your buyer and your audience. So cool. So talking about obviously the problem, getting starting there, um, what other elements of this kind of content IP to, uh, are really important that folks should, to, should think about. So I think it's first like sitting down, figuring out what the problems are, right? Understanding your customer and your audience. These are two different things. Customer research is like your one-to-one -one, hand to hand jobs to be done interviews, like figuring out what is happening in their lives that is causing them to make these decisions where maybe your product or, or service or whatever is a solution. 
audience research is a little bit bigger. We're zooming out and saying, hey, these are our exact customers that we already have right now, or if we're really early in product that we're interviewing, so we're trying to figure out what to build. Um, zooming out is like, hey, what does the larger audience want and how do we help them? Especially in things like B2B, where it's like we are helping them succeed professionally. This makes a huge difference. Uh, an example that resonates a lot with me is, uh, do you know anybody that has like sleep apnea or anything like mm. that? Like they really have trouble sleeping and yep. breathing at night? Yeah. A lot of times what people think is the impetus to uh, use a, a breathing machine at night or to get surgery or whatever is like, oh, they have low quality sleep. They're tired all the time. And there's a part of that. Um, and then there's this phrase and this phenomenon that happens uh, called a sleep divorce, <laughs> which is where you are snoring so much and so violently and waking up so much throughout the night that your spouse is unable to sleep. And it causes the two of you to sleep in separate bedrooms <laughs> or you do get the sleep uh, like apnea machine and it's so loud and obtrusive. Mm. You have this giant, you know, I don't even know, astronaut headset on. Yeah. Right. The, I have never heard of a visceral statement that resonated with me as much as that. <laughs> and when I heard that, it was like, oh, that is what happens. I don't want that. I don't want this machine. I want to get surgery. Like surgery scares all these reasons people would not do that. I will get that because I don't want to get a sleep divorce from my, mm. my partner or my spouse, right? It's naming a problem. We're not giving a clever name to the solution. So I think first is figuring out like what the actual problems and pain points are using things like, like having conversations with people using things like, um, what's it, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference is a great book of figuring out how to go deeper without just being mm. like a patronizing or, you know, a, a insolent child and just being like, why, why? Get like four levels deep. Mm. A lot of times our pain point marketing falls flat because we're looking at surface level pain points. Mm. When you go three or four levels deep, you can give people that like gut punch and they're like, oh, that is really like if we're doing sales tech, it's like, you know, hit your hit OTE and like make more money. Hmm. Yeah. But like, how about never get put on a pip ever again? Mm -hmm. Right. Like all of a sudden it changes. Right. Stop having your parents question your career choice. Like there's stuff in there that you can get to in these conversations. Taylor's gets like a little like hand wavy and marketing drum circle, but like give it a name. Two hmm. or three words max. I love mm. words that start with the same letter sometimes. So they like kind mm. of rhyme um, the great recession and stuff like spend time wordsmithing mm. this stuff. I don't know if I even love content IP. Like, I mm. don't know if that's even the right phrase. I don't feel mm. like that hits hard enough and is enough of a prop. Like I'm talking about the problem in that phrase. So you're constantly like wordsmithing this. That's a first step. Brendan, I'm bought in. Let's create words for the problems our customers have. How do we get it in front of them? This like really simple, like five step framework works, right? We're creating content around the problem itself, not our solutions. We're just naming the problem, sharing data, sharing facts, sharing information that's making people go, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. Step two, sharing content and every marketer skips this second step. The, everybody's bought in, yeah, yeah, share content around the problem. Share content around the first roadblock to the problem. As you start to solve this, you will run into this next issue. What is that issue? Uh, in the world, like I used to do a lot of my work around SEO. I still do, but it was like my sole focus. I noticed the first roadblock was explaining SEO to your CEO. <laughs> CEOs just didn't get SEO. And you being like, well, it's a black box and Google and backlinks. Like that didn't help them understand. 
So I just gave my audience a framework for how to explain. It's the I am framework, intent, asset, and medium helps them explain SEO to their CEO. Hmm. So name the problem, give them a template. We're not giving people like Excel files and stuff, uh, but just give them a simple template to solve hmm. that problem. It can be a way of thinking about something, a three-step framework, whatever, right? Then share a customer or client case study of somebody solving that problem and then high-level interesting roundup right? How somebody, maybe that's not a client of yours, that problem. How did they deal with that? So the same thing that you help people solve problem, roadblock, template, customer story, and then like a high level, interesting roundup. And that gives us five good pieces of content around that piece of IP. You can keep going with that more problem stuff, more roadblock stuff. There's more, there's way more in there. But we have this five core pieces of content that we know will not only viral in the B2B world, especially on LinkedIn, but that doesn't drive revenue. And that's part of the problem. It can build you, get you a lot of eyeballs, but why are they going to stick around? How do I attract what, like if I were to go in-house right now, I could pull people out of current roles. I could definitely find hmm. a ton of people who are not, who are unemployed or underemployed right now. People who are freelancing and happy doing their own thing, but we'd be more than happy to go in-house to work with somebody else. I can give you five people right now that like, I would shut down everything to go work with them. If they called me and you got to shut everything down, absolutely. The mm -hmm. question is, how do we, how does everybody build that for themselves? Super cool. I love that. Chris Voss, um, never spoke the difference book therapist, right? Do this really well where they just repeat back what they hear with, um, it creates not only that trust, that understanding, but they get, you grab their attention. You want to hear them say, Chris says, that's right. When somebody's reading your post, you want them to be like, oh, that's right. You know, that's exactly, it resonates with me. Spend a little bit of time, uh, kind of as we go through these, uh, the first roadblock to the problem. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and you're right. Tell me uh, maybe why we never see that, why people aren't focused on that. And what does that do? Does it like go a little bit deeper into the problem? So you create more connection or yeah, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Why is that important? Uh, let me give you an example. Um, I worked with a MarTech company who uh, one of the pieces of IP that they really worked on, they were a digital asset management software. So it's what you use after you outgrow Dropbox and Google Drive. You have too many digital assets that are flying all over the place. You can't keep track of them. Sales is using the wrong thing. And Marketing's got this and what's the ad creative, but that's got to be different and resized for this. Like e-commerce brands run into this a ton and so do a lot of others. And what we realized was like the, the products solve that when you're creating software, marketing software, you're like, yeah, we have the problem. And if you would just get our software, you would have the solution. So they just keep pressing like, this is your solution. This is your solution. There's other problems that are going to happen, right? Or there's piece, things that happen along the way. So the issue is that like you have uh, with digital asset management right now, you have this, what they, we ended up calling relay race marketing, right? Where people are just handing off assets to each other, mm -hmm. just passing the baton over and over and over. And it creates bottlenecks. And then people, you know, the more handoffs you have, the more likely the baton is to get dropped. It's a beautiful analogy, right? Relay race marketing. And this is like the woo woo part of marketing, but like I'm mm -hmm. big on mouthfeel. Like mm -hmm. how does it physically feel to say mm -hmm. these words? Sometimes you say it out loud and you're like, that feels gross. If it doesn't feel right saying it, they're not going to. Um, so with relay race marketing, what we realized was the first roadblock to solving that problem, like you know the problem, you're, you're committed to solving it. Now, once you use digital asset management software, your team has been so dependent on one another. When I need something, I go to a person or a person comes to me and it's the passing of the baton. But now you're passing the baton to yourself. 
you're moving to a self-service model. Taking an organization that has historically run on people asking and requesting things constantly from each other and ask them to go self-service is a huge roadblock. We're asking for organizational culture change. If you tell people that that's going to happen or it is currently happening to them, again, it's like, shut up and take my money. You know exactly what we're going through. You've warned me ahead of time of like, hey, hey, hmm. just letting you know, as you start to try to solve this, hmm. you're gonna run into this next thing. I love that. And that's almost, it's twofold. I mean, obviously you're building that trust and you're going deeper and you're, it's that, it's a continuation of the problem, but it also is value in and of itself. You're like warning them of like, hey, you're gonna go down this path. Here's something you can sh should consider. It's providing some sort of value impact even without even going into your third point, which is providing some sort of value. And I always think of marketing and sales. I think all in all, really all of go to market. How can you be your organization's first product? How can you actually provide value in exchange for attention? The best companies that do this are when every interaction with a buyer before they become a customer, they're actually helping them solve a problem, giving them little, you know, tidbits of knowledge so that they want to come back for more. So I'd love to hear more on the kind of number three of like the template. What, what type of problem does it solve? Number one, does it solve the entire problem? Does it solve a, a portion of the problem? What's your thoughts on, on Sometimes the third point? Sometimes it's like an actual template. I work in software. So like a lot of the world is still using Excel for stuff. Like there's a very good chance that the people you're trying to reach who are not ready, I call this the pre-buyer journey, hmm. give them the template. Give them, when I was at ActiveCampaign, I personally built like, a hundred of these scripts, deck templates, Excel templates, budget temp, like everything that you could want that just helps them do the thing that we're helping them do. Sometimes it is that easy, right? Like if you're a compensation management software and you're like, oh my God, these huge companies don't even use anything. Like they're still running all of their comp out of Excel, give them the Excel template. And it's like, well, then aren't they going to use that instead of our software? Uh, they already are. Like, like, like mm. we have to live in the real world of like, if they are happy using your template and not your software, first of all, we have to question why the software exists, right? If it's not mm. drastically superior to Excel or Google Sheets. Um, but second to that, like, who, who are they going to come to? Who are they going to trust? And brand your template. Make it beautiful, right? Put your brand colors in there. Put your logo in one of the cells. They'll delete it. That's fine. They still remember where they got it from right? Especially if they're using it constantly. Uh, Taylor, I have been using the same, uh, a friend of mine shared a projects and projections Google sheet with me hmm. probably six years ago. And it is still how I keep track of all of the clients I work with and all the revenue that I make. It's just a Google sheet. Like it's not fancy, but like, I remember who gave that to me and they have my trust forever hmm. because of that. Right. I've also paid them a lot of money for, for the things they offer over time. Um, so I think that that's a real, it's like, sometimes it is literally a template. Also, I want to be really clear. We should have like led with this of I'm not better than anybody at this stuff. The problem is when you're in house, you don't have time to sit and just like fucking think for a minute. Mm. Like you, there's no thinking time in a lot mm. of companies. It's mm. just production time, produce output, output, output. And then once we mm. get past output, it's impact impact mm. metrics constantly. And you don't have time to sit and just be like creative. Mm. 
Mm. and be like, well, I wonder what my customer's problems are. We've been saying that customer's problems are the same for the last 10 years. Like maybe they've changed. Spoiler, they have. Like that sort of stuff makes a huge difference so far. You and I have probably given five or six frameworks already. Mm. You already have these things in you, Mm. right? And if you don't have templates and frameworks, ask your customers. How are you solving this problem right now? Oh, I use this like thing, you know, that I've got in Excel or, or sometimes it's just like, oh, I have this like way I think about something. And you're like, cool, codify that, create a framework out of it. My friend Natalie at a company called Novatic uh, had this framework that she was talking to me about. Uh, it's called the Valuable and Unique Framework. <laughs> That's like a template in, in her, or it, call it like the VU framework. We don't release any sort of marketing materials or we don't do any sort of marketing campaigns if they are not both valuable and unique. Hmm. A lot of times we think things are valuable, but it's the same crap every marketer at every other company Mm -hmm. is doing. For her, it has to be both. That is an example of like a template or something that we can give to our customers where they're like, okay, cool. Now I have this new operating system for the world. And that builds trust. Super cool, Brendan. That's awesome. I love the I love that it's almost like a stepping stone uh, to obviously your service or your software, your product. Um, it can kind of be a good in between. HubSpot does a great exam- does a great job of this with all of their templates and their on their blog and whatnot. And you can provide some sort of value. I love also that you said ask your customer. If you don't have if you don't have the exact framework, ask them what they're currently doing. That's always a great place to start when it comes to marketing or sales or anything good in market is just ask your current customers what they're doing or how they perceive you or the problems, et cetera. Um, that's super cool. Well, and the two next points you talked about was. Uh, customer case studies, how to do those, that an outcome a customer produced and you're kind of resharing that an extension of the case study or what's your thoughts there? The case study piece is very much like how customers solved content IP, right? Like how do they solve our IP? If somebody doesn't know like what that IP is, you can attach a metric to it. Like how so-and-so conquered relay race marketing by increasing or decreasing metric, right? And it's like, well, I want to increase or decrease that metric the same as them. I like to call these things curiosity levers of like, what is that? What is that freight? What is relay race marketing? Like I get that they, but what was that thing? And it makes you want to like, again, we could learn a lot from like B2C, the B2C side of things. I've used a lot of like consumer and general public examples in this. Cause I want you to see like this stuff is everywhere. If you just zoom out a little mm. bit on those customer case studies, I focus a lot, not on like how they increased the metric or tactically what we did or whatever else, but like, why was that a problem for them? What were they going through? I want them, I want my potential customer or client to see themselves in that story of like, oh, they went through this. I am Luke Skywalker and this company or this person or this, whoever is Mm. Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? It puts you in the seat of guide as opposed Mm. to main character. And unfortunately in a lot of case studies and stuff, the company, kind of becomes the main character. Hmm. We help them do this and we help them do that. And we help hmm. them do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but kind of just talking about your solution a lot, like put the knife in and twist it a little bit on the pain hmm. point. Like that is the whole point of that. We're so focused on saying what our solution did and all these outcomes. Hmm. Um, and then on the other piece of like a high level, interesting roundup, find out how other people are solving this. Find out how people, your audience, or especially in B2B, who are the companies your audience cares about? If I'm in um cybersecurity or threat intelligence tell me how crowdstrike does this tell me how record mm. get on the phone with tom wentworth at recorded future who i love well, i don't know him something you know what i mean he's their cmo so like probably not him but like 
figure out who there, who has the title of your customer at this company, find out what they're doing. Pulling your audience into your content and putting the wrapper of your IP around it is incredibly powerful. Super cool. That's awesome. And then lastly, you kind of threw in an additional tidbit, which was really around like employer branding um, in a way of like, how do you get your, uh, build those relationships with people through content? Probably one of the most missed opportunities I see, especially, you know, this year finding great talent is, is always a challenge. Um, thoughts on how to create, I mean, obviously your, your content IP or your content that you're putting out there is going to build relationships with folks. Anything else you can add to that, that builds that relationship and ultimately the, the opportunity to be able to hire or work with those folks down the road? Yeah, I read uh, this thing this morning from Joe Chernov uh, at Pendo. And I'm going to see if I can find it for you really quickly because I felt like it was so elegant. Uh, so Joe Chernov at Pendo says, every time I leave a meeting with marketing leads at Pendo, I'm reminded that for all the focus on new tech, data, KPIs, emerging strategies, the CMO job ultimately comes down to hiring. Get hiring wrong and none mm -hmm. of that stuff matters. Get it right and all that stuff begins to fall into place. Thanks, team. And I was like, this is that employer brand. Like when you're the ones that are defining the problem for your customers, again, we think that like the category creation matters and you have these like category people being like, well, well, Gainsight and Apple and all these other things. And it's like, you guys are literally cherry picking three to five companies and ignoring the other 99.999% of them. Sure, some of those people do it, but we're looking at survive like survivorship bias is 100% the story there. We're like, mm -hmm. well, they survive, so they must be the like, that's not how that works. Right. Mm. Um, so that employee brand, like when you're the one that truly owns the problems of the customers, not mm. only do you get big customer love, but like everybody begins to hear that, like, hey, it's really cool working on support at this company because customers kind of love it. They have problems that they love the company and the product. Right. Or they love the brand or, you know, mm. it's great to do marketing there. Oh, my gosh, you should come here and work on the sales team, dude. It is so much easier than fighting the uphill battles at these competitors. Mm. And it's not always because you're a leader. It's you might just be a regular player, right? You might not even be the, the the category creator, right? Yeah. But that can absolutely happen. And that's how you kind of close that gap. I love it. And I would even argue, like even look at Steve Jobs or anyone that's created a category, um, they had tremendous empathy and they understood their customers so well. I mean, they're all infamous for being focused on the customer and creating an amazing product. And the category almost came out of that, right? It didn't start with them creating this new thing and then working their way backwards. It came out of understanding the market, understanding the customer, the competition, understanding all those key elements. Um, and then from there creating an amazing product. They're like, look, it's, it's this. And what they forget is that like Apple, I think they got some absurd uh, loan from like a rich uncle or something. Mm. And they immediately took on money. But what's important, like, first of all, that's interesting. Just the idea of like, it was just them in their garage bootstrapping it, they yeah. raised money immediately. But what they did with that money was look at their audience and look at their customers, mm. right? That was the first thing they did was customer research and audience research. Mm. That matters. And that's a thing that gets skipped with Apple a lot is it's like, well, they're these visionaries and they created the iPod and it's like, no, MP3 players already existed. Yeah, They were, they were and have been, all category creators are maniacal about interviewing their customers and figuring that stuff out. And I think that more companies would benefit by not jumping the shark and hmm. figuring out what their problems are and naming those. I love it.
That's awesome. I think, yeah. In closing, um, yeah, super great. Just in the regards of like, go deeper with your customers, um, understand their pain points, understand what's really going on. Like you even said, not even the th three levels of why, but even deeper than that or understanding really what's going on. And through that, creating your content. And I love even what you said earlier about the frameworks. I was actually just listening to Larry Summers on the uh, All In podcast. And he had this quote, which I thought about frameworks. It was really interesting because he was talking about regulations. And he said, you need frameworks for freedom to thrive. And uh, it was about regulation and whatnot. But I think in general, finding that framework, whether it's this content IP framework or the framework you have in general uh, for how do you solve your problems. Um, and through that, you can then have creativity. You can then push the boundaries, but you still have it within these realms of, of uh, restriction to, to make sure you still drive revenue, even if you are, you know, trying to get that post to go viral or trying to get the most attention, you still are getting the baselines done, right? You're still protecting the brand. You're still understanding your customer, et cetera, et cetera. So super cool. Yeah, I agree. Awesome, Brendan. Well, thanks for coming on. How can folks follow you and connect with you online? Yeah, uh, obviously I share a lot of this on LinkedIn. Uh, that would be the first thing. Uh, Brendan Hufford, you can misspell it as much as you would like. Uh, you could also Google Brendan Hufford or Brendan Hufford LinkedIn. Uh, the key, the best part of having a really unique name, uh, I feel terrible for my buddy, uh, Justin Jackson. Good luck <laughs> ranking well for that. But like if you Google Brendan Hufford, no matter how bad you spell it, uh, you'll find me. Uh, and LinkedIn is the first place. And then I have a newsletter that I write to about 26,000 uh, SaaS marketers every single week called Growing Up. Uh, that's where we kind of go behind the scenes and talk about how SaaS and software companies actually get customers by interviewing the people that work there. Super cool. I will put all those links in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on, Brendan. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dale.